0: fight. We don't have to kill. Everybody in the wide world really just needs to chill. No, we don't have to bust. No, no, no. We don't have to fight. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Just Chill with Oliver George. This is episode number 63, and I am sitting across from a man with some uh, crazy credentials that I can't wait to talk about. I don't mean crazy in a bad way, like crazy impressive. Um, But before we get into that, I want to remind you, if you're watching on YouTube right now and you would prefer an audio-only version, you can get that on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and many other places like that. If you're listening on one of those right now and you didn't know there was a visual side to this thing, then please come check it out here on YouTube. While you're there, if you could subscribe, it would really mean a lot to me. We recently hit 1,000 subscribers and it does warm my heart, so thank you if you've supported the show in any way. If you want to contact me, you can hit me up at justchillpodcasting at gmail.com. While you're there, let me know if you're interested in one of these stickers. I recently got an email from a fan of the show in Dublin, Ireland. Gary Cunningham, shout out to you. He's a super supportive dude. So you've got some of these coming to you, man. Uh, That's it am i forgetting anything i don't think so fuck mike's hard lemonade we'll throw that in um but let's get to the guest the man of the hour dr yeah, matthew that. buchanan
1: fuck mike's hard lemonade
0: thank yeah. you yeah, yeah i'm I hoping some that. guests will God join in <laughs> yeah i'll tell you more about it after the show um yeah, so, Paul, so
1: yeah thanks for having me man i appreciate it Good
0: i didn't know if i should in include there. derek because i've seen both when i'm reading about stuff of, of yours online what, what is uh, your yeah. preferred title
1: yeah I mean uh, so that, that's an interesting question actually like academically, I do use like my whole name. My first name is technically Derek Matthew Buchanan or like mm. that's my whole name. Uh, but for this podcast. And for, or... for this, like uh, for comedy purposes and stuff, uh, in my whole life I've grown up, everybody always called me Matthew by my second name. It's like a family thing. We go by our second name. Okay. And Interesting. Uh, yeah, so all the, uh, pretty much everybody on my family, on my dad's side, we go by our second name and we all have like four or more, like lots of names <laughs> and stuff. And uh, But I made the decision, like, uh, I don't know, what once I really started my academic career to go by... Um, you know, Derek or Derek Matthew from the point of view of when I'm doing, like, my academic, when I'm publishing, when I'm, I'm writing and stuff like that. And then, like, I guess you could call my my stage name, my comedy name, Just which is differentiate also what people them. call me. Yeah, because yeah. really it's like if you're, you know, if from, like, a work point of view, if, if you're – interviewing me or like I'm a candidate for some position. I don't want people to necessarily find all my comedy stuff yes, when I was they're looking talk for to my science stuff. Yeah. So I've like kind of used that distinction. So if you search, you know, Derek Matthew Buchanan, you'll mostly find things related to my science. If you search Matt Buchanan, you're going to find all my comedy stuff. So
0: So yeah, I asked cuz my yeah. son, he'll add your name graphically after. So gotcha. maybe we'll do both. We'll do nice. Matthew Buchanan, Buchanan rather yeah. uh, comedy and then Dr. Derek Matthew Buchanan, PhD, <laughs> yeah. can pop up after that for all the science-related uh, stuff. That's
1: nice. Yeah, you did get the whole title in there. appreciate
0: it. Yeah, yeah, man. Well, first of all, congrats on uh, all your recent life developments. You're only a few days away from heading off to California to do your, I want to get this right, uh, postdoctoral research fellowship. That's right. At yeah. Stanford. Very Everyone good. knows
1: Stanford. That's super yeah. impressive. They're Are you excited? You. Oh, fuck yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm really excited for that. I mean, there's. it's been a lot to get done in the last like couple of months. Like I only found out, um, I mean, it took me like six interviews and like this whole international competition started, it started, you know, early summer and then found out probably late July that I actually got the position. Wow. And then now it must it's have been just, kind of
0: grueling while you're waiting.
1: Yeah, man. And like, I kept telling them, like, I was really hoping I would know sooner and then I wanted to know by like Canada day. And then I probably didn't find out till like late July that I was officially got it. And then it was like, okay, I got like a month and a half now to, to leave. Well, to uproot your
0: whole life. Yeah. That's no, n- yeah. not a small thing. Um, we should say why you're going there, yeah. uh, just sort of your s- field of study. You are, again, I want to get this right, I specified clinical, because mm. uh, a clinical PhD neuroscientist. That's right. And you've yeah. had some training at Harvard, yep. some at McGill.
1: Yep. Did I read right that you There's did some of- in Europe? Yeah, I did. You you must have checked my LinkedIn, or something. <laughs> hey, man, I try to dig no, deep, that's You know, good. no, I appreciate it. that's uh, that's some good good research on your end. You got very thorough looking notes there too. Yeah, yeah they're kind of right. sloppy looking it's, in another uh, regard. It looks like a, a great eight. Long student as long as it works them. for you, but uh, I do pictures sometimes. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's right. So I um, I do have training at Harvard, which is sort of like. A, To my specialty, like I went to Harvard in 2015 to get a certification for the like my specific techniques that I work on, basically because at the time there wasn't really anywhere that you could actually get trained on that in Ottawa. It's like a pretty new uh, type of technique involving brain stimulation and stuff. Hmm. And uh, yeah, I got my PhD and did work. uh, I have certificates from McGill as well. Did a fellowship in Geneva for several years. Yeah, that was so uh, cool. um, Kind of through like. Work stuff that I developed out here. We published some papers together uh, with them. It was a neurology lab out there. That was on a scholarship too that that I got. This like a international scholarship called the Think Swiss Scholarship. That like basically the Canadian American Swiss embassies uh, every year have this scholarship that you can apply for. That like sponsors. Uh, Canadian and American students to go to Switzerland to foster new collaborations and that sort of thing. Wow, that's so awesome. Yeah, Yeah, it was pretty awesome. It was, I mean, that was a great experience. That was in 2018 and uh, basically spent a semester there uh, working out of this lab, getting that kind of mentorship and then... While I was there, I also got to travel, like, a lot. So, I mean, I I, pro- I think I went to more than 10 countries in the, like, four months I was there, just all around Europe, pretty much, like, seeing everything That's that badass. I could see. Every weekend, I would just go somewhere, because, like, it's all so cheap, and, like, nice And Europe's so close there. together, and, exactly, comparatively You take to, uh... a train somewhere, you take a whatever, like, if I was in Geneva, but I could, like, see France from my window kind of thing, like, wow. parts of France, and uh, there was a mountain in France out there that I could see out of my window, actually... Uh, from my apartment in Geneva. And I remember looking at that mountain every day. And then I was like, man, I want to like just climb it. It'd be nice. And then I found out you could jump off it. And so I went and did paragliding off that mountain, too. Holy insane. hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have video or anything like I that? I do, actually. Yeah. Oh, I have man. like a couple clips uh, somewhere of me like in the air flying. Sitting, if you send it to me, I'll put it lap. up. I'll cut okay, the combo so, yeah, and put this up so nice. people can yeah, see. Yeah, I could send like a, a short clip of that. It's just like me super stoked out of my mind. And then the guy's like, I don't know, doing his, his you know, colloquial jargon talk of, do you like <laughs> chocolate? We have good chocolate in Switzerland. <laughs> Trying to keep you calm. Yeah. I was like, he kept saying too, because like I'm, I'm a big dude, right? And he kept saying, he's like, well, we're losing altitude quickly. Uh, we're going down a lot faster than usual because they like kind of <laughs> promise that when you go for this, that it's going to be like a 20 minute, you know, you get to flow for 20 minutes. He's like, we're going down a lot quicker. He's like, it's okay. He literally, he I, no joke. We, we went down... I mean, say it's supposed to be 20 minutes. We were probably down in 12 minutes and he literally was, <laughs> we're in the air and he's like negotiating a discount with me. He's like, oh my we'll God. give you 25% off. We'll give you a refund for a bit. And I was like, sweet, man. I'm, I was having such a good time. I was like, I don't fuck take my money, man. This is great. But
0: this should be a bit for sure. If it's I not, I never even thought about oh, it man, until right that's now. That's hilarious. It actually, as you're describing it, it sounds like something that would happen to Homer Simpson. <laughs> you know, he got stuck on the, the water slide. Oh, yeah. Like that. yeah. Yeah, I've oh, man, almost, so funny. you know,
1: Calypso here, me and my buddy, like we came closer to the edge and I, I think was very safe to to do like the lifeguard, like the one that's like a half pipe and yeah. in, in the kids section actually too, because uh, we <laughs> went in there were like only two of us on it. And I think the limit was 400 pounds and we were definitely close to 500 pounds. <laughs> And the lifeguard, like, stood up. She was like, I've never seen somebody get that close to the edge. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I don't want to ever do that again.
0: Well, Calypso has had quite a few lawsuits, if I remember correctly, that there's been some people permanently injured. I think they even had someone die there. I don't know if you can remember that. But anyways, um, you'll notice I throw to my dad for (laughs) fact-checking. Nice. Uh, Even though he has not really the ability to Google things because he's too busy switching cams and and monitoring everything else. But he just generally knows a lot of shit. So. Mm -hmm. Um, well, man, I want to talk to you about your field of study because I, again, a lot of this was over my head. I tried reading some of the papers. Some of them I got more than others, but I did gather that your focus is this transcranial, again, I'm going to check my notes. Mm -hmm. I want to pronounce it right here. Transcranial direct current stimulation. That's right. Yeah. So this is like shock therapy in the layman's terms to some degree.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I would just, I would say yes to totally but at the same time I'm uh, the the scientist in me forces me to correct people when they say things like that only because oh please please the do. The, the the idea or like the terminology shock therapy i feel is stigmatized mm-hmm. a bit which is why i correct it because technically it doesn't fall under that category. Like the one when people think of shock therapy is usually more referring to something called electroconvulsive therapy. That's the one where you put the like the big coils up to the head, the one you see in movies. Exactly. That's the only one you ever see in movies that's like this. I don't think there's any movie that's ever had a, a direct current stimulation device in it or a magnetic stimulation. It's always like the big one. And excuse me, usually it's used for Things like people who have like very, very severe treatment resistant depression or people who have uh, like epilepsy, people who have uh, schizophrenia, that sort of thing, which is why I think in historically in movies, it's, it's created a negative stigma surrounding it. So, in current terminology, I mean, it's a, uh, I guess you could say we've like, we've canceled that terminology. We, 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 uh, I get it. If there's to, those negative connotations, exactly. Yeah. So, we try to use, uh, refer to it in a more, uh, scientific light so that it doesn't give people that negative feeling about it, like that that type of connotation when they are thinking about it, especially when it comes to, you know, having new patients uh, come in and like, you don't want them to think about it or feel stigmatized when, when they're getting it. And yeah. so all this is to say that that uh, one that you would traditionally have maybe heard the terminology like shock therapy is more electroconvulsive therapy or ECT, um, which Comparatively to uh, what I do, where I've spent a lot of time on, is transcranial direct current stimulation. Uh, the short form for that is tDCS. Uh, just in case I, I use that terminology, so it doesn't. Yeah, uh, I had that here too. TDCS, yeah, it just yeah. it okay. saves time when you're. You know, it's a long, long term. Yeah. So I like I'll break that down for you. Basically, transcranial direct current stimulation. Word by word, so transcranial means like across the scalp. So trans, like Trans Canada Highway, it's across Canada. Transcranial meaning across the cranium. So we're sending electricity across the brain. Hmm. Um, direct current is is DC. So everyone's probably familiar with the band AC-DC yes. or maybe, you know, Edison and Tesla, right? you guys Yeah. <laughs> so you've got AC and DC current. They're different types of electricity uh, and there are different types of brain stimulation that you can use. And, and you can use direct current stimulation on the brain you can use alternating current stimulation on the brain. And there's different reasons why you would use each of them. But mainly direct current, what it's doing is basically injecting direct current into the brain. And it's all non-invasive, which means it doesn't involve surgery. It's all topical. Like, there is literally um, TDCS devices built into headphones, much like what we're wearing. Like, imagine you just had two electrodes inserted underneath this cushion of the headphones. That is something that you would... Would this be painful? Uh, typically it's, no, it's considered to be painless, but there are some people who experience like some degree of pain to it. So, um, uh, like, let's say on a scale from one to five, some people might say that it's like painful at like a one, you know, okay. like a so very like more mild. of an annoyance. Yeah. So most people describe it more as being itchy or tingly or, um uh, mm. like pinpricks, like needles or pinpricks kind of thing. Uh, or like your f- if you're, your like, foot falls asleep. Exactly. Okay. That sort of thing. So it's generally not described as painful, but more so in that light and the idea really is that okay you've got when you think about mental health or neurological conditions most of the time your people will think about them in the light of some brain region is not active enough, or another brain region is too active, right? Like that makes sense. So part of your brain's doing too much, or another part of your brain's not doing enough, and because of that, you're having these symptoms that make you feel a certain way, and that's what leads to a particular mental health condition, neurological condition, or so on. So basically, we use this direct current stimulation, which involves typically two different electrodes, a positive electrode and a negative electrode. And you can choose where you put them on the head in order to choose which brain region you're trying to manipulate. Hmm. And in basic terms, wherever you put the positive one, it's going to pull positive ions that way. And wherever you put the negative one, it's going to pull negative ions that way. So you can introduce more uh, negative electricity to one part of the brain or positive electricity. And since our brain is ultimately an electrical chemical system, when we pull the positive ions one way, it increases the excitability of that brain region. So it increases that activity. So if we know that a particular brain region is Underactive, or in scientific terms we call it hypoactive, then we would introduce positive current to that area and mm. you can basically boost the activity in that region or conversely, if you have part of your brain that is not active enough, or rather, the or, or sorry, it's too active, it's hyperactive, uh, then we introduce a negative current to that part of the brain. And it's very low uh, milliamps, so again, comparing that to something like ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, uh, it's about like a thousand times less uh, of a current oh, wow. that's actually used. So most, even I believe most cell phone batteries uh, are like around 800 milliamps. I might be wrong on that. I'm trying to remember from a, a lecture slide that I've given before. Yeah, no. Like I think it's around 800. And um, TDCS, direct current stimulation, usually you max out at two milliamps. Okay. So it's a very mild current that we actually introduce yeah, into a huge the brain. Difference. Yeah, very big difference. And really, what it's doing is just kind of modulating brain activity in a very particular region uh, and the thing is if you do if you do that once like to actually treat somebody with it you would maybe do 20 sessions of it so you would do say, 20 minutes a day for five days a week for four weeks. And once you've done that, then it can kind of achieve what's called a neuroplastic change. So you can change the brain with one session and that might last an hour or two. But if you want to change the brain like permanently, in other words, like getting more towards like a cure for a disease. This was going to be my next question. Yeah, That it kind of gets into a more permanent change. Yeah.
0: I would be interested to see if that would work well in conjunction with a lot of the stuff I've heard about uh, psychedelic mushrooms Mm -hmm. and neurogenesis and being Mm -hmm. able to essentially – Grow the brain in in new areas and yep. stuff. So I would wonder if those would be combined, if that would see any success.
1: Yeah, no, that, that's a great point. I think um, whether it's uh, mushrooms, ibogaine, ayahuasca, LSD, even LSD, or traditional pharmaceuticals, SSRIs, ketamine, they ketamine. It like, yeah. doesn't really. Basically, TDCS, uh, direct current stimulation, is is regularly used as like an adjunct treatment, which okay. means like yeah, it's like an add on. You can use it on its own. But it, it does actually work quite well with these other treatments, and there's a lot of good mm-hmm. research that demonstrates, like, if you combine them, you get a better effect than using one or the other. So by using both, you get aggregate effects. Which uh, makes perfect sense, yeah. Exactly. So it's, well, uh, I noticed
0: yeah. in one of the papers that you guys were – it seemed like trying to prove – uh, that this would be a viable option to use for ADHD in children. Yeah. Yeah. Because again, with those negative associations people have with electro th- shock therapy, yeah. um, I could see why people would maybe not want to sign their kids up for that. So you guys are trying to yeah. disprove some of those, you know, uh, horrible stigmas, as you were
1: saying. Yeah, no, exactly. So, it, we started off with this idea that it's probably, I mean, pretty much any mental health or neurological condition you can think of, it's been tried in like now as of 2021, like anything, you you know, ADHD, OCD, depression, anxiety, Parkinson's, stroke, like anything you could think of, I, I guarantee you'd find a paper that has, has investigated that. But where we came in, this started in, like, 2015. And this technique really only emerged in 2010 or so. Uh, Originally, or sorry, I guess it only emerged in children in 2011, but it started emerging um, maybe a little bit, like, closer to, like, 2001 in adults. Okay. Um, And then we started our major trials in 2014, 2015. And that was in pediatrics and kids because up until that point, and even still now, Uh, If you were to look at like, you know, there's probably been an maybe a few thousand papers, maybe probably no more than like 10,000 articles that have been published on this in scientific literature since 2000. And like 95% of those articles are in adult groups. So only like 5% of all the research, actually less than 5% that's been done was in kids. And so- Super minimal, yeah. It's really small amount of that. And so like, there's only a handful of groups even around the world that actually have done pediatric or, or, you know, childhood direct current stimulation. And so we were sort of pioneering that uh, through the children's hospital, doing that work because we were hoping and based on a lot of the research we read, it seemed like it could be very effective in treating ADHD. So the idea was let's, let's try to see if we can apply that. But then even in doing so, like you said, there was so much stigma around it that it was difficult to recruit people, for instance. So we ended up having more than 30 children participate in our study and, and, that was a good number for us in general. Like that's what we were aiming for. But it took us several years, even just to get that many. And yeah. you know, you you can imagine, I guess, like if you're a parent and you've never heard of this, and somebody approaches you and you say, "Hey, can I do?" Can like, I put electrical? a big magnet next to your yeah. kid's head? Yeah. Can I do that? And, and they're like, "Well, what? are You know, they have a lot of questions, right? Yeah. What? Uh, you know, is it fine? Is it safe? Is it well? Even you know, what you just broke down do?
0: about, like the I don't know, if voltage is the right, yeah. uh, but that makes yeah. a huge. Uh, you know, comparison, easier to understand. When you said that to me, it was was really, the numbers were so far apart from each other that I think that would make me feel at ease a
1: little bit. Yeah, it's really within, like, safe standards. And so, like, a lot of this was tested in animals before, too. And you have to use, like, hundreds of times more current to actually, like, lesion the brain or, like, burn it or or cause something, like, damage to the brain, basically. But don't
0: youth uh, have, like, still developing brains? So that would be another hesitation, I would think, then.
1: Yeah, yeah, that was definitely a lot of people's concerns. They're like, well, you know, my kid's still growing. Like, are you going to mess up his brain forever kind of thing? And, I mean, for those reasons, it is important to be cautious, but it's also... Why we you know we wouldn't necessarily recommend doing it unless you have uh, like a need for it like yes. if you're a child though and you're you know eight years old we had children as young as six years old if you're eight years old six years old or something and you have severe ADHD and then you're already toying with the idea of do I give my child methylphenidate which is like the generic name for like Adderall or um, uh, like Ritalin basically and you're like well do I give them that. I mean, it's the same question. Is it safe? Is it going to mess up their brain? Like, What is it going to do? Or for depression, they give kids Prozac all the time. Exactly. And there are children as young as that age that have like severe mental health, neurological conditions. And so when we look at something like brain stimulation as an alternative, it's actually significantly less harmful. Uh, There's less side effects related to it. Uh, There's all kinds of things that make it seem uh, more feasible. But... You still have to go through this whole gambit of research to actually demonstrate that empirically, to show that this is, in fact, uh, everything that we say it is and that it is safe. And mostly we adapt that by using what we know from adults. So, okay, there's been thousands of adult trials. None of them had any adverse effects. It didn't seem harmful in any of them. Maybe we could adapt it to kids. And that's why in our trial, we we ran this big safety trial where we had 30 kids. And then we also got 30 adults. And we actually compared the two groups to each other directly. So we could see if if the adults show up to be basically the same as the kids and the kids, like there's no differences between them, then, well, we already know it's good to use in adults. We already know it's safe. And then we can do the same thing in kids. And we can show that in the same study. Excuse Excuse me. Then, you know, it makes sense that we could then start to actually translate more of that research from adults into kids because we just showed that, you know, there was literally no difference. Between well, and especially the since your your end
0: goal is to help these kids or help yeah. anyone really. But yeah, yeah, I mean, obviously it's scary to try to venture into new territory, but if it's for a good cause, then you got to try.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And so one of the studies we did was called an acceptability study. So after we did that big study, which was like a randomized controlled double blind study, like a hardcore scientific study, then we did another one where we we interviewed families who participated in that study. So it was like a follow-up study and we interviewed them and we asked them all those types of questions like, why did you participate in our study? Like what motivated you to? And, And we found out that a lot of the parents were motivated to participate in this new brain stimulation study, even though it's a a study about, uh, you know, something that could potentially help their kid is was kind of the main thing, but it seems, you know, off the... Face value, It's this thing about new medical treatment and brain stimulation in my kid. Like, it seems a bit scary. I understand that.
0: People want lots of years of, uh, you know, proving. Exactly. Research and all that, yeah.
1: We asked them, you know, what motivated you to participate? And we found out that really a lot of it was because, like, they felt it could help their kid. And they, you know, they have tried all these medications and the medications don't work. Or they've tried all these medications and... Uh, they they don't like all the side effects that the medications have, you know, like their child gained all kinds of weight, then they lost all kinds of weight or their child it affected their mood and like so many other things. So they're like, we are hopeful that there's like a new alternative. And so that was sort of a really important paper as well to help us facilitate, I guess, like our, our knowledge transfer for that and to create a more uh, I guess like safe understanding of like what, is required from the parent's point of view and from the children's point of view to create a a safe and, uh, inviting uh, sort of yeah, environment. environment. Yeah, environment for them, exactly. Like, how can we offer this treatment in a way that's considerate of all of your needs? Yeah. And because we've realized, like, you know, we're the ones doing it, and we realize at face value, if you don't know all the literature, if you haven't read everything about it, and you're just asked this in a waiting room of a psychiatric clinic, and somebody <laughs> hands you a pamphlet and says, yeah. would you like to participate? It's, you know, not everybody wanted to sign up, right? Yeah.
0: But well, Did you yeah. have people return that loved the therapy so much that they wanted to continue on?
1: Yeah, yeah, there were lots of people who were, were very keen to continue and to do more of it. And um, I mean, so that's where my research goes nowadays is really we want to make this more available because in order to actually, like there's nowhere, well, I shouldn't say nowhere, but if, if you're a child particularly, like there's really nowhere where you can just go now. Like if you were to call your doctor and say, I want to get direct current stimulation therapy, like they, I guarantee you, most doctors haven't even heard of it. And most of them wouldn't know where to refer you, even if they had heard of it, because there isn't really any clinics that offer it. Yeah, there's not really hospitals that offer it. You have to you be lucky know, enough to
0: get in on one of these to trials. get in a research
1: trial. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. So it's we're trying to make it more available and get more people doing it. Um, well, right c- now, it kudos is approved. To you, man, for uh, that. Appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, it's been a long haul, and I mean, sort of, kind of, really helped. Uh, this was like a big part of my career was building these studies, and now we're, yeah, we're trying to get. It approved for more things like Health Canada has approved it for things like treating chronic pain, treating uh, addiction, treating depression. But that's only after like twenty years of hardcore research uh, that had to go through to like get to that level of actually getting approved. So like Health Canada has approved it, FDA has approved it in the United States. Uh, Australia and the EU. But now the like, next step is building the clinics and getting people to actually yeah start to offer it and outlets do, for that exactly. Yeah. And it's not a very like profitable treatment, which is another reason why there wasn't uh, a lot of that research fell on people like myself who were doing like PhDs or you know graduate students and you know local doctors who are interested. Um, there's no like big pharma companies picking up direct current stimulation because there's not really a lot of money to be made in it, uh, just simply based on the the value of, of the technology. So like you can buy a direct current stimulation device on Amazon now for, and oh, I really? wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend that <laughs> certainly, like, but you could, you if can you can also buy a it. tattoo gun. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a good point, right? Like you can get a lot of things that you probably shouldn't use. Yeah. And, uh, and they're like a few hundred dollars. Like ours is like more like $10,000. It's, it's a scientific grade device and there's certainly something to be said about consumer grade devices versus, versus, uh, medical grade devices, but even that, like a $10,000 device, technically it's something you can make fairly easily, but there's a lot of like safety things that are built into ours and lots of different procedural stuff that's built into our device that you can't Mm. find in other ones. But even now, if you're a doctor um, so I, this I would recommend, if you are out there listening and you are a doctor, you can get one. And there's a great company called Soterics that makes them. There's even a company in Ottawa called Neuroleave, uh, who specifically manufactures these devices for chronic pain. And the the doctor, there's a, a medical doctor who owns that who used to be a physician. Uh, I think he's like retired now mostly, but he was a physician. Primarily his focus was on treating people with chronic pain. Mm. and then he started this company in like early like 2010ish or so, and called NeuroLeave. and you know that's an Ottawa-based company, so that's why I bring it up because it's it's you know close to home here. But there is you know globally there's this company called Soterix, and if you you have to be a physician to purchase the devices, um, and you can get them now for like you know five hundred dollars thousand dollars or something for a basic device, and for those reasons like these pharma companies there's not much money in it because kind of like. Any reasonably good engineer could, like, make one of these uh, at home in a garage, you know? So
0: I was going to say, wouldn't the doctor need special training on how to use it as well yeah, on a patient?
1: Yeah, exactly. If you are a doctor and you decide that you want to start using this in your clinic the companies you purchase them from will basically like provide that training along Do with it's sort service. of like a turnkey solution they give you. They send you the devices. They come and train you how to provide uh, this service. And the, the technology is getting a lot better too because like, you know, you, you can – like I've trained so many people on this too, like in my lab from like a research point of view. So like when we have new graduate students and stuff and they're getting involved and I train them how to use it myself. But now it gets – it's more sophisticated now than it used to be because you can – you know, you could do it on somebody's brain using measurements of their scalp, basically. So there's different ways of knowing what you're targeting because you you can't just put it anywhere. You do have to put the electrodes in a particular spot. Not everyone's
0: brain is exactly the same. Everybody's
1: head size is different. The shapes are different, age, like all these little factors. So Hmm. there's ways you can actually measure the brain using something called the uh, EEG 1020 system, which is like you take percentages, like 10% from here to here, 10% from here to here, 20% around, and you can basically find all these particular brain regions with relative precision but you're only getting wow. about a centimeter worth of precision. There's a way that you can get more precise, and that's like if I actually scan your brain using like an MRI or something, yeah. then we can get like millimeter precision. And map it out. And we can actually map it exactly. And that's costs a lot more money to do that, of course. And so usually, again, that's hmm. only happens in research trials at this point. But it's something that, again, the the level of sophistication is getting higher. We use like 3D coordinate systems with like sensors and um, I mean, earlier you also, you mentioned magnetic stimulation. And I was going to say, because this is a big part of your Stanford thing, right? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So there is a, let me know if I'm talking too much. No, I mean, no, I please. Well, I, uh, <laughs> I have a question though. Yeah, yeah my, please, I might might he's a scientist, yeah. Yeah. so.
2: Well, I'm not going that route, funny enough. Okay. But um, what I'd like to know, or, or uh, one of the things that might slow its adoption is, uh, these, these docs are going to need a no hip billing code.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that's a, absolutely a good point. Um, if there is no billing code, they are apprehensive because it's like, what do they call it, right? How do they bill for it? Yeah. Um, and there isn't, uh, I don't believe there is a billing code for it. Um, not yet at least, there might be for magnetic stimulation. What does OHIP uh, stand for? Like, I have a rough idea, but for listeners on, in Dublin. Yeah, <laughs> the Ontario Health
0: Insurance Plan. There you go. The Ontario,
2: yeah, I think it used to be Ontario Hospitalization Insurance Plan. Well, well, I just though thought of my done. health
0: card when you said it, but I had right. no idea what the acronym stood yeah. for other than Ontario.
1: No, that's true. This is a global podcast, man. We well, gotta, uh, like I'm learning that, yeah. Masses. I've got some people here and there. <laughs> no, and I appreciate awesome, you man. guys. Yeah, so no, that is a good question. Basically, like, if you're... If Countries' health insurance plans. Uh, for those of you who have universal health care, uh, you know, if if they don't cover that, then um, doctors will. So at the moment, you, there's some doctors who could prescribe it as what's called like an off-label treatment, but there isn't like a yeah exactly like a specific billing code, and so it's like how do you actually bill for that? Kind of a gray zone, and, right uh, now. Yeah. Exactly. So it's like we want to get it to a better place, and uh, that's more from like I do know some some PhD. Uh, friends of mine who I've met that are like working on policy related more from like a government point of view to try to affect policy to introduce that sort of thing. And I mean, that's a whole other area of, uh, uh can you tell Red me a table. bit about
0: how the uh, the magnetic stimulation would differ from the electrical?
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's a wicked question. And uh, this is something I actually, I was just teaching a lecture on this last night. I, I teach uh, still at the university uh, here in Ottawa, but it's all virtual. So I'll, I'll be able to maintain that role. I've been teaching since uh, 2016. Uh, at Carleton in neuroscience department. I mostly teach clinical neuroscience. And then I have this one really, really cool course, which maybe we could talk about some of that stuff later, which is on uh, emerging technologies and brain-computer interfaces. And I just kind of teach all about that kind of stuff, and we talk about, like, new neurotech. And uh, so... Anyway, I just was teaching them about this yesterday, which is like some of the differences. So a lot of what I've talked about up to this point was about direct current stimulation, which falls under the umbrella of electrical brain stimulation. Then there's another type of brain stimulation uh, that has its whole so that like. There's like 20 different types of electrical brain stimulation, which include things like ECT, electric convulsive therapy, alternating current stimulation, direct current stimulation, and a bunch of other like versions of that. But those are probably the most popular. Then there's this whole other umbrella called magnetic stimulation, And remember, our brain's an electrical chemical system, or or rather it should be more precise, it's an electromagnetic chemical system. Um, Put all those three things together, it's uh, the electricity, the magnetic properties of the brain, and it's really the way that the electrical and magnetic properties interplay that, you know, releases chemicals in the brain. And different chemicals have different magnetic charges to them and different electrical charges. So, like, if you remember when, you know, back to, like, physics class or chemistry, when you look at different atoms, uh, they have different charges to them. Like, how many electrons does this one have and how how many... uh, Yeah, like, so if it has, like, a negative electric charge or a positive electric charge... uh, then, you know, you can have a more positive atom, more negative atom, that sort of thing. And that is ultimately what makes up our brain, these different chemicals and the different charges that exist on them. So we can change, we can alter the electrical properties by introducing electricity, but similarly, we can alter magnetic aspects of the brain by introducing magnets to them. So um, to your question, which is like, what are some of the, the real differences between them? So this is – I'm really excited because, yeah, the work I'm going to be doing at Stanford is more with magnetic stimulation, which is – in if you're in the field of neuroscience, it's like the sexier technique to use. Like people are like more into it. I would like, assume you wouldn't you get know? those t-
0: prickly tingles in the
1: um, same way or – in a, it's like different sensations. There are actually some people who experience it to be a bit painful depending on uh, where you're stimulating because basically in this case you're actually stimulating the nerves too. The pain is more so because our brain actually doesn't have any feeling. You, you can like poke the brain and drill into it. You won't actually feel it. But what you feel is the nerves that are in your scalp and your scalp and uh, it's your skull. This uh, is why uh, the they can matter. do open uh, brain surgery when the exactly, person's yeah. still awake and yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah, which is so gnarly. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, there's some really cool research on that too. I've seen some wicked videos. They'll poke
0: a spot and say, you know, what do you smell?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Man. And they'll use things like magnetic stimulation in those as well, actually, to, um, if you're doing brain surgery, like let's say you're di- dissecting or you're trying to remove a tumor from the brain, you can sort of like draw a perimeter around the tumor using um, magnetic stimulation because if hmm. you're hitting the tumor, it will not respond because the, the that uh, it's not going to fire it's not going to cause any neurons to fire so basically you can like draw a perimeter precisely around the edge of it so as soon as you're you're hitting tumor you're hitting tumor nothing's firing nothing's firing something's firing okay don't cut there cuz as soon as you see something firing you know that's part of the brain that's still working so then you draw this perimeter around it and so a lot of the time before you go into a brain surgery like that you'll like draw this perimeter around that part Markers. of the brain exactly yeah. and then you say don't cut anything outside of that because that's still good brain the rest of its tumor and then you, yeah. you can you how to do it.
2: you get the depth
1: um, speaking of brain depth though we got to show
0: this sick yeah. photo look at that thing that's you. Oh, sorry.
1: Flip the camera. Yeah, Matt brought this. We're
0: going to throw this up on the wall, but uh, I just thought this was relevant. This is a brain. (laughs) This
1: is, yeah, it's like a a cross section of a brain where we look at like different, uh, these are uh, pyramidal neurons and apical dendrites that like reach upward to the top layers of the cortex. So you can kind of see, yeah, this is like a higher level of the cortex projecting down to the bottom. What you can kind of see here is like different layers of cortex and stuff um i printed these photos so long ago i can't remember necessarily even what part of the brain this was but uh but i had some prints uh, of things like this and things that were up in my office and and when you mentioned to bring something i was like you know that's probably oh dude i love it and it's suitable for me i mean it's at least something that when you you see it you'll be like oh yeah that was here because i had that the neuroscientist here and uh of course no i hope
0: you'll sign the back or something oh yeah i could definitely Um, it uh, makes me think of like it could be like an album cover or something though it would probably like make, a, make tool a good cover album yeah, or yeah.
1: Something. the uh oh, sorry my dad <laughs> yeah, had asked so your about, the depth. about the yeah. depth yeah so uh, magnetic stimulation can definitely go deeper than direct current stimulation that's that's a good point as well that is one of the differences basically we can increase the depth of the magnetic stimulation by using different types of uh, magnetic coils so um uh, Usually at this point, I'd pull up a slide with four types of coils <laughs> on them, and then I'd show you all the different coils that there are. But basically, the way magnetic stimulation works is so the simplest type of coil looks like this. Uh, it's it's just a circular coil. Nobody really uses those anymore, but those emerged in like the 70s. But uh, now they often use what's called a figure eight coil, which would just be two of these side by side. Hmm. So what happens is when you pass an electric field, sorry, I'm going keep bumping the mic. Basically, if you pass an electric field through a circular coil or through a figure eight coil, by passing an electric field through that very quickly, um, or an electric charge rather, it creates a magnetic field around it. And that's where the magnetic properties come from. So when you place that over the brain, it will introduce, um, uh, it'll change the polarity of the neuron. So the inside of a neuron and the outside of a neuron one, are always differentially charged. So the way that we have what's called synapses or action potentials when our neurons fire, basically, uh, which is what makes, you know, we have thousands and thousands, more like millions and billions of neurons firing every second, that's what makes us function. And they fire and then they release chemicals into the synapse and then the synapse, you know, will recycle all those chemicals and pick them back up and then use them all over again and so on Mm. and so forth. But the inside of the cell is always um charge differently than the outside of the cell. Now when you introduce the magnetic current to that, you basically just flip the polarity of it instantly. So it causes an action potential to fire right away. And that's that ultimately is actually the main differentiation between direct current stimulation and magnetic, but I find the minutia of that is probably a little bit too like detailed to bother trying to actually really explain right now, which is just that direct current stimulation can change the potential of having an action potential. Like it can increase the likelihood, but it doesn't actually cause the neurons to fire. Uh, It will make it more likely or less likely, depending if you use a positive current or negative current, but the magnetic stimulation actually causes it to happen because you introduce such a strong magnetic field magnetic field that it will flip the polarity. Probably why people say it's less comfortable or more, uh, you know. Yeah, and it's all the nerves that surround it and everything on the scalp and that you, you... It's also affecting those as it has to get through the brain. And so to get to the depth, again, to the question of depth is the way that we... So we started with the circle coil, then there's a figure eight coil, which is just like two circles. And then there is... Um, an angular coil where you take a figure eight, but then you angle it, basically each of these types of coils can go a little bit deeper. Like just a traditional circle coil can maybe go about like a couple centimeters deep into the brain. When you create the angular coil or the figure eight coil, then the angular coil, you can get even deeper and even deeper. And really that's Mm. just by creating a stronger magnetic field. And then like there is the most like I guess like the the most depth you can get is using something called like an HD coil, which is almost like looks like a magneto or, or like cerebrum. kind of helmet looking thing, Cerebro. or like a cerebrum yeah, type yeah. thing. Yeah, that's so where cool. you put that whole thing on your head, and then it just like has a very very precise current that it introduces into the head. And you
0: find all the mutants all across yeah, the world. And, and that's exactly
1: how it <laughs> works. So that's super so, cool. and,
2: and so generally, you know. As a consumer product these days, there's very strong rare earth magnets that people use, mm. you know, just for their fridges these days, not not those big flat squares, but these little nickel, shiny ones yeah, in, yeah. and they stick like the Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. So you don't want to let the kids be waving those or holding them up to their temporal lobes <laughs> and um. messing the polarity of their brains, or do is that uh, not strong enough? I
1: would wager it's probably not strong enough, but it still might not be a good idea. Uh, Especially if you're getting, like, the industrial
0: strength one or something. Yeah,
1: but I'm going to say I, I'm pretty sure that it wouldn't have the the right amount of strength for that. Because if it did, then we'd probably just use that sort of thing in the lab, too. When we were kids, it was always, TV's, don't bring
0: it near, like, the TV the TV,
1: yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, it's kind of the same premise. Like, you're, you're just totally messing up the... Uh, the TV system. I don't know enough about exactly how the electronics work, but exactly. It's like, you're pulling out the, uh, have you ever seen a F, F is for family
0: when I he, did? Well, yeah, like you get the brand new and uh, TV and it's yeah. like, you know, one of these behemoth things, yeah. but they were super cool at the time. Yeah. And cause that show set in like the seventies, I believe. And yeah. um the kid, fucks it up with a magnet and it's a whole thing but yeah (laughs) i I do remember
1: that episode yeah and then didn't they like yeah he had to like (laughs) go and return it yeah he brought it back and tried to say
0: it was their fault yeah 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 (laughs) Yeah, no that's a great show have you ever (laughs) seen that dad it's uh bill burr is the voice and it i think it's largely him showing the audience what his childhood was kind of like except Mm -hmm. he's doing the voice of his dad essentially right Um, and and he's you know one of these guys who can't keep his cool. He's always about to fucking go postal, but he mm-hmm. still loves his family. You can tell yeah. somewhere down there he's got a good heart, but yeah. swears all it's, the time. And
1: it's quality. That's a quality. Yeah. And even the kids. I mean, he's funny in that show, but his kids are pretty funny. Yeah, like Justin, the, the Long, youngest one, and the uh, yeah. oh, the
0: youngest one too. Yeah, Justin yeah. Long is like the fucking guy who looks like he's in the Ramones. And
1: yeah, the oldest brother, right? Like, like, like I the don't kind of stoner, care. Like, God, yeah. <laughs> shut
0: up! <laughs> fucking hate you guys. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, you have That's to watch quality. It um shit man well this is super interesting stuff i wanted to talk there was a couple other papers that again i i absorbed as much as i could Mm -hmm. but um where's the other one oh, you guys potentially identified a new biomarker for concussion and pain after motor vehicle mm-hmm. accidents. I mm-hmm. thought that sounded really cool. And it was a study that took several years, Yeah, which is badass in its own right. So can you tell me a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think...
0: Uh, this was a paper you were a part of, right?
1: Yeah, it was. I was the lead author on this paper. This is one of the ones I published with a, a group here in Ottawa. This was actually outside of my PhD. like, it, it was just work that I was doing on the side. I was a research director at a private clinic here in Ottawa, and this was published with the doctor I worked with uh, in Geneva as well, so we we collaborated on this together. This paper is actually one of the the pieces that got me that scholarship to go out to Geneva to work with this doctor because I had this collaboration and the whole point of this scholarship is to do international collaboration with Switzerland. So, excuse me, so um, yeah, that was a really fun paper. Uh, And I guess to your point, I'd say actually, sadly, pretty much all all of the stuff I've ever had to do, and most science I'm aware of, ends up taking years. It it really, it never is fast. That's Um, kind of
0: comforting in the long run, though, because it would imply that people are being thorough.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we we take our time, and I think things move faster if you have more money. That that's kind of the main thing. Or if there's a pandemic. uh,
0: Yeah. (laughs) Because people are like, I don't trust this vaccine. It's like, well, my dad was just sort of explaining that to me the other day. Not that I was that guy, the non. Mm-hmm. But saying that, you know, these emergency emergency protocols really speed up the process that yeah. normally gets bogged down with a lot of bureaucratics and, and yeah. all that. So, so much
1: red tape on everything, exactly. which is
0: generally for good reason. But when everyone's family but, is dying yeah. and everyone's kind of affected on a global scale, you could see how that would, you know it's hasten uh, things. Exactly.
1: It's all about risk versus benefit and you know if it, we, we do as much all that red tape's there to mitigate risk but when you have such a demanding reason yeah like when it comes to something like the pandemic it, it takes a long time and you know like to do a major clinical trials and the reason you know most cl- clinical trials and stuff like they occur over the course of like five ten years because you have to go from phase one two three four like you got to go through all these different phases where, you know, phase one, you're just trying to show that it's safe. Phase two, you show that it's better than a placebo. Phase three, you show that it's better than um, the alternatives. And then phase four, you go to market, basically. Mm. And each of those phases takes two or three years in themselves. Um, And you have to constantly increase the number of people that you have. So by the time you're like a pharmaceutical company, you're done a phase, you know, you're in phase four, you've probably already had like more than 10,000 people try this and no small clinic or no small university has money to run 10,000 people in a study. It's just not feasible. Like I just told you about a study, we had 60 people and that was like a big deal, right? Yeah, And that that's just goes to kind of show like the caliber of this sort of thing and to get it approved, you really kind of need to have these large numbers Um, And there's a lot of like statistics behind that that can kind of tell you how many people, but I think when it came to things like pandemic and and the vaccines, uh, we got those numbers pretty quickly as well. And when it came to the risk, uh, there was that too. Yeah,
2: they overlapped some stages. Like they they started stage three when stage two is still ongoing. Right. They let it run for a while, but it was looking promising. So they'd start phase three, assuming that phase two is going to work out.
1: Right. Yes, yeah. See, and that makes sense. And and I think you know, from a scientist point of view, it, it makes sense to me why like how that could go down. And
0: and especially when the whole world is yelling at you, like, "Hey, science guys, hurry up! We yeah. need a vaccine." But then you're also mad at them and you don't trust their vaccine. It's like,
1: uh, I don't know. You can't have both. <laughs> yeah. No. It's, yeah. You you can't go have it both ways. Uh, that's it. You know. And so we we did this trial. Uh, yeah. We this was using a technique called electroencephalography uh so I'll break down that word too where like electroencephalography uh it's like kind of like three words in one uh electro meaning the electrical properties and cephal being the latin route for uh the brain encephal like the uh encephalogram kind of thing and the Encephalitis
0: gram, is like when your brain swells Yeah right? like
1: of the brain yeah exactly yeah. like anything encephal is kind of like the route meaning of brain and so and then um so when we call it electroencephalography or electroencephalogram, um, gram meaning also being Latin root for like image or picture. So basically, what what that breaks down to is the electrical picture of your brain. And so we are. It's it's more like a graph where you end up with you know what we're reading out is the electrical firing that is going on in your brain, doing using different electrodes. And this is sort of like uh, again, it pairs well as an electrical technique when we're talking about electrical brain stimulation and compared to it's a type of neuroimaging technique the one most people are more familiar with like what you see in movies or more common in hospitals or things like ct scans which yeah. is a com- computerized tomography or like mris like a magnetic resonance imaging which is again like that's the magnetic property so it's like You've got a lot of this in neuroscience where you've got a lot of electrical based techniques and a lot of magnetic based techniques because they're leveraging different physics in our brain and they're leveraging different physics of the you know that of the tools basically. So when you're using magnetic resonance imaging you're able to use very high powered magnets to take pictures of the brain. When you're using electroencephalography you're able to use this uh, these uh, electrodes to record electrical activity from the brain. And that's what we used in this biomarker study, uh, which was in patients with concussion and patients who had concussion and chronic pain, actually. And so, from, we had From motor vehicle from, ad- accidents specifically? Yeah, yeah, from motor vehicle accidents, exactly. So, that was uh, one of the strengths of our study, so to speak, is a lot of. Concussion-based studies have, you know, they might have a mix of athletes, people who've slipped and fall and had a yeah. concussion, people who were assaulted and had a concussion, people who've been in a car accident had a concussion. Soldiers. Soldiers, exactly. Blast-related yeah. traumas. But they all, like that, they all have a bit of a different etiology or like a cause. So, so the cause of that disease... Um, can slightly impact the way that the data should be interpreted, but because all of our patients, so we have 57 patients and 54 in a control group, so people who didn't have brain injuries. So we had a total of 111 people. But all of our patients uh, were brain injuries due to car accidents. So we know that the etiology is the same, which sort of eliminates that variable. So when we're doing science, we want to control for as many variables as possible. So if we had five different causes of brain injury, well, then that's maybe five different ways you should interpret the data. But we have only one cause, so we know that it's due to this, for instance. So we control for those things.
0: I mean, there's some variety in how car crashes can go down I'm sure and, and the 100%. types of injuries you're being inflicted with.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, that that's a but great point too, too. Compared
0: to having like all these this broad, you know, group of very yeah. different things, you know.
1: Yeah, no, that's a, absolutely a good point though and I mean uh you can have a an injury where your head actually like hits the windshield or you can have an injury that's just whiplash yeah. where maybe your head didn't even impact anything, but it got whipped so hard that your, your, what actually happened is your brain hit your skull. And when your oh, brain hits your own skull. That's a hard sentence just, to hear. I don't know why. <laughs> it oh shakes inside your head like a yolk inside of an egg. Yeah. Right? Oh, oh, I'm uh, already picturing. <laughs> yeah. So that, that can happen. Um, but when you've got... Uh, um, for instance, so that's different than like a blast induced trauma. Like if you're a soldier and you have like a concussion, like a concussive blast that you feel like that's a shockwave that gives you a brain injury versus like slipping and falling, you can hit your head. But what's still different about that is that the actual experience of a car accident as a whole is a different experience than say, two football players hitting their heads together. And you might say, okay, why is that different? So if you're in a car accident, you hit your head off a windshield, why is that different than two football players butting heads? The difference is that the football players expect to do that um, so that the, their mindset is actually quite different in going into it. When you experience a car accident, you experience a few things all at the same time. You experience fear uh, because you typically you're not expecting to be in a car accident. So adrenaline. So you have a sudden onset of adrenaline, of fear response. Um, usually there's like an onset of like panic for a lot of people. Um, that can often induce and you know, lead to things like developing PTSD later on. Um, you also have an onset of pain that was unexpected and it's, some of those factors really weigh into being able to like predict outcomes of, okay, if you're in a car accident and so let's just break it down like this. If you're in a car accident and you know, you're very calm afterwards and you're like, okay, I was in a car accident and, you know, my head hurts a little bit and, you know, that sucks. This wasn't great experience. Even if it was like relatively severe, but you came out fairly safe and you're a person who's like very resilient and maybe it didn't affect you that much. Your response at the time of the car accident is actually very predictive of whether or not four months from now you're going to develop something. If you've got trauma, yeah. it's going to be lasting, yeah. And if whereas if you're the type of person, you're in a car accident, you get out, you're panicking, everything's crazy, you're in shock, you know, you're know, you crying. That would be me. The The likelihood <laughs> of you developing something months down the line is much higher. Like You can kind of predict based on your initial response how it's not always hard and fast that rule, but that's, you know, there's research that's demonstrated that. And so anyway, all this is to just say that there is, by having everybody from a car accident, it's the experience in itself of the car accident that, that shapes a lot of the way these things develop. And so we came up with these biomarkers um, using electroencephalography. So we look at all these different electrical properties in the brain, and then we look at different regions of the brain um, and, and we, see what was different between the patient group and the control group. So the control group is just a group of like, so so to speak, healthy, or we use the term neurotypical. So like they have no mental health conditions, no neurological conditions. They're just healthy adults who we've scanned their brain and then we match them for age and sex. So like we have the same number of males and females, basically. They're relatively the same average age uh, because like things like being male or female or being older or younger you have different types of brain activity so you try to match up that again just controlling for variables and then we see what's different in the brain and then we use traditional statistics to do that to like derive these differences and then i built uh, a series of machine learning models that were able to predict with currently what is now the highest published accuracy for it was like uh, 87 concussion. or something 87.6% wow. i think yeah um, there was some studies that were pretty close to that that were published before like 82, 83%. Yeah, but you're not eighty-seven point six, (laughs) bitch. Yeah. (laughs) So we hit that eighty-seven point six, man, and uh, so that was a nice. So someone comes for
0: ninety. Are you gonna be like motivated to go back and? (laughs) Ah, Fuck. But no, at (laughs) the same same time,
1: I'd be excited still. And the thing is, even eighty-seven, though, they people will still say it's like not good enough. Generally, to get real uh, clinical models, like if you want that to be adopted to be like ubiquitous in clinics, like you have to get ninety-five percent or higher uh, accuracy. And there's also still steps we have to take. So that was, we got 87% predictive power uh, at the group level. But really, we want to be able to apply that to every single patient. So if you're one person and you come in, which requires more power. So there is still steps we have to take. Like, we need to independently validate these results now. So they were validated using the machine learning models in... uh, I don't know if it's worth getting into it basically, but you create like a holdout set. So you create a model and then you test that model on a sample that had nothing to do with the other model so that you can make sure that they are, you're not like biasing one model. But really now the next step is repeat that same study in a brand new sample and see if you can replicate your results. And if you mm-hmm. can replicate that again, then you know it's, it's pretty valid. It's validated in an independent sample. Uh, so we're working on doing stuff like that right now. Man, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah. It's, oh, uh, maybe you can
0: speak to this because I've mm-hmm. been told, uh, I can't remember who told me this, but it sounded plausible that when people get into a car crash, oftentimes a drunk driver will survive unscathed because they don't tense up because they're so carefree and drunk. Is this true? Would that have any?
1: Yeah, I've, I've heard this uh, before too. Um, I, I've I guess my response would probably be along the same line of like anecdote that you've heard, because I I don't know if I've read anything specific in the literature about that, but I've heard that like anecdotally as well. Like if you're a drunk driver that because of the fact that you are more calm, more limber, more relaxed in general, like your response at the time of the car accident, assuming that you didn't get like impaled by something that actually Directly either kills you or causes significant. Or if damage, you just get flung from the vehicle, yeah, that you you're perhaps more likely to come out better than the uh, the victim because yeah. of the fact that you were just uh, your state of mind at the time and in you, your body, uh, the level of relaxation among your you know autonomic and peripheral nervous system are um, better. And actually, that's a good point about drinking and driving. First of all, don't do it. Yes, um, but. One people always, the people who do, usually it's because they convince themselves that they don't also realize that your central nervous system and your peripheral nervous system are, are disconnected. And so your central nervous system, which involves your brain and your spinal cord, might tell you that. Um, I feel fine. Yeah. I could drive. No, I'm pretty good. I'm cognizant. But what you don't realize is that while you're saying that, you're kind of stumbling and moving around yeah. and your motor Slurring skills. your speech a little. Or, yeah, yeah. because your motor skills are peripheral nervous system, and that is also impaired independent of your central nervous system. So even if you think that you're fine because your your brain is telling you you're good, you don't realize that your motor skills, your reaction times, all that's impaired at the same time. Hmm. So it's like. Which would
0: imply yeah. that your brain's a little impaired as well, because yeah. you're not noticing your own slurring and stumbling. Yeah, 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 exactly.
1: I mean, you, you, your brain is definitely it is impaired, but it's like you, you get that drunk confidence too, and you're like, yeah, yeah I'm good to go. And well,
0: yeah, at the beginning, it always kind of feels like that, but there is a point for sure where you get drunk enough that your brain starts telling you, like, whoa, I can't make yeah. out where I'm going or whose yeah. face is that, <laughs> you know. Don't yeah, get that exactly. drunk, and definitely don't drive if you are that drunk. Um, Oh, there was another recent paper viewers that I read about. Again, a team you worked with, but an imagination uh, mm. and how it interacts interacts rather with perception, which mm-hmm. just sounded cool in the title. A lot of these yeah. were
1: really not easy
0: reading, though. For that
1: one is probably the most dense technical paper I've ever published, and yeah, it is. It's not for light reading. <laughs> is it for podcasting? Or <laughs> I could give you the gist of it, um, but there, yeah, I won't get I won't get too into it. Basically, it was just like we were, we were looking at, this is some work that I actually started doing like early in my research career in like 2013, maybe. Um, like I, I started working off in a field that was called cognitive neuroscience, which is more like neuroscience based on like mechanisms in the brain and, and things like that, as opposed to where, you know, by like 2014, 15 to like present, like now I, I've been strictly focused on... Uh, even though this paper did just come out, I guess I dabble, but it's like uh, I I mostly focus on clinical neuroscience, like you, you had uh, noted earlier, which is, you know, the clinical applications of doing neuroscience, sort of the intersect between medicine and neuroscience. Yeah. And... I always say as like a joke, kind of like, I mean, it really wouldn't hit in a club, but it's like a joke I make to like my neuro friends that I'm like, it's like, it was my way of like getting as close as I could be to being a neurologist without having to go to medical school. (laughs) Because I didn't go to medical school. I'm just a PhD, but I did clinical neuroscience. And so it's like, I'm close to being a neurologist. I'm just like, I'm not quite there. And... Hey, man, you're still young. But uh, yeah, I mean, if you I, ever I want to go that route. I've thought about it, but I just don't think I have it in me anymore. I don't know how, even looking back, I don't even know how I did some of the stuff that I did. I'm like, I'm gassed, man. Like, I don't know how. How I, old are you? I'm 29. Oh, okay. I wasn't so sure. I, was like, I couldn't really place you. Yeah. I, I, uh, I, I don't know. I, I still have, I think I've got, I'm reinvigorated for my new position, but I was just kind of, I'm like, I don't know how I did some of the just like the number of hours that you had to put in, and just some of the way that having like five classes back to back, and then you gotta like, there's so much. Uh, it's kind of different when you don't have to go to class anymore. It's
2: called youth.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's an energy I, I miss. But so the the gist of that paper though is like we wanted to know. Uh, it's it's my my PhD supervisor his career is largely focused on on this aspect of neuroscience about imagination and perception and you know imagery and uh, mental imagery, hallucination type stuff. And then there's perception, which is like what you're actually seeing. So that's like more like the reality of things. And so we are really just asking this question of like, how does imagination affect perception and vice versa? Mm. And the way we investigated that was by saying, can, like what happens, like the initial thought, there's a lot of research that shows like imagination uh, interferes with perception if you're trying to do them simultaneously. So basically we would present you with a task, um, like a visual acuity task, which is a type of, uh, a type of task where uh, we show you some stimulus and you have to like tell us um, give us some information about that stimulus basically and you know detect it like where was that stimulus and different things and we only flash it to you for like you know half a second or less kind of thing oh, wow. so it's like we're, we're really just showing you stuff so it's like a perceptual task so we give you this task and we flash a stimulus and I mean the, the breakdown of one of these was really simple is like there's there's like a box and then there's a line, like a really thin line. And the line could be either just slightly to the left of center or just slightly to the right of the center. And we flash it for half a second and we say, Was it to the left or to the right? Okay. And you're like, I don't know. I mean you're you're trying to think, was it left or right? And you know, if you're quick enough, you know, technically half a mill or half a second is long enough to to detect it perceptually. Yeah. Um and then you would you would have to answer was it left or was it right was it left or was it right and you do that hundreds of times basically and then we would calculate your accuracy like how well did you do on that and then we would do the same task again but we would ask you now while you're doing that task imagine uh, different things at the same you know while you're doing the task and we'd see did that decrease your accuracy in performance yeah. of this task or did it increase the accuracy our prediction was that it would actually decrease that's the what accuracy. i would have said yeah but it turned out for a lot of people it actually increased their performance by imagining at the same time weird and it was weird not expected <laughs> and so then we well, had to I mean to... that's hard enough just to do it <laughs> i know right <laughs> yeah, it's I,
0: like I, I screwed it up right there
2: <laughs> there you and, go and i know that right. that's that's visual but um, something that I always wondered about was when I was in school, mm-hmm. there were people who studied listening to music at the same time. Yeah. And there are other, like, I could never do that. I mm-hmm. needed dead silence pretty much yeah. when I studied. And so w- was this auditory stimulation working the same ways as visual stuff, uh, using your imagination? Like two things combined together, I guess, to, for mm-hmm. a better outcome.
1: Yeah, no, good, good question. Like, uh, and I think it's, so one of the, it was kind of really not a very... Interesting explanation for all this is that it came down really to individual differences. It was hard to necessarily find a group level explanation for this. That some people will be one way and some the other. Mm. Um, like I, I personally, I I love listening to music while I study. It definitely helps me a lot. Uh, you know, one of my professors, I remember she used to always tell us too. Like she needs silence when she's doing stuff. She cannot study with music. It's that's like a whole other. I thing I can do for some her. things
0: with music, but I would not study with music. I don't no. think. No,
1: see, I almost need music when I'm studying. Like only very seldom when I. I'm trying to, like, laser lock in when I need to, like, will I shut off my music? Otherwise, I'm almost always running music in the background.
0: He made me think of something when he brought up music, though, that uh, imagination lends itself very well to listening to music because, Mm -hmm. especially if there's lyrics, you can generally paint a picture of the story or whatever's happening in the song, lyrically speaking. Mm -hmm. But... That would be still very different from listening to a song and trying to imagine something that has nothing to do with the song. Yeah. Like that, you know, completely different parameters
1: there. Like the don't think of an elephant. Yeah. What are you thinking of now? An elephant. Well, that's
0: (laughs) that's a life of anyone with OCD. Don't think about (laughs) this thing that stresses the shit out of you. Oh, yeah, yeah. I do that every fucking day. Um, (laughs) Yeah. But hey, maybe I need some of that uh, transcranial action. Hey, man, it's uh,
1: one of the big <laughs> studies at Stanford is on OCD. It's uh, I know they're doing that yeah. with
0: shrooms as well in uh, Arizona or somewhere. Oh, for, yeah? For OCD specifically. It was the first time I had seen one. Oh, neat. Uh, it might have been last year or
1: something. I somewhere. know like the Ottawa Royal is doing a lot with ketamine right now too. I've um, heard that for depression. Mostly, yeah. not. Yeah. For, I don't think for OCD, but yeah, for depression they're doing it. And it's supposed to be quite effective. I've heard a couple comics and, talk uh, about that.
0: Neil Brennan's oh, done yeah. that, I think. And someone else, I'm, I'm forgetting. It. Are you sure
1: they're not just? Signing up for the money, they're like, Hey, I heard they're offering 50 bucks to take. No, care of me. And like, I do He's that on a-, <laughs> a real, he
0: seems like the real deal. That dude, yeah, yeah. yeah. wait,
1: Neil Brennan or David Brennan? No,
0: Neil Brennan, yeah. David Brennan's awesome, he's okay. been on this show, but um, also, yeah, I Neil Brennan's the know. dude who was, um co-creator of Chappelle's show. Oh, shit. Really skinny, uh, bespectacled fellow. Oh, yeah. Um, I think I
1: could picture him. Yeah,
0: I was thinking... He has a great special on Netflix called Three Mics, where he keeps hmm. switching from the mics. One of them he only does puns on. One of them he <laughs> only tells stories on. And it's it makes for oh, a really, really a cool concept. special. I can't remember what the that's third mic great, that's is. That's a great concept. Apologies to Neil Brennan, but go yeah. check it out. I will say a plug is mm-hmm. shit. Um, Let's, because we've already been talking forever, and it's so fun. Yeah, let's pivot to your book, man. Totally
1: taxed people on this neuro stuff. I mean, it can be heavy, man. To to listen. Hey, man, not every
0: episode's for every
1: person, but I'm having a blast. I didn't know anything about
0: this. I'm following along better than I thought I would. But I do want to talk about your book, which you were nice enough to bring a copy. Yeah, because both my dad and I, you know, it's we were talking about. It's a very intriguing title that sucks you in. Mm -hmm. An explanation for life, Mm -hmm. the universe, the brain, the mind, and consciousness. Yes. Apparently, the answers lie within. Yes. And I did like that the earth was an egg, sort mm-hmm. of the birth of, you know. Uh, no, life. I appreciate
1: that you're taking in the art, and uh, it's something I actually designed nearly every aspect of this book, the cover, the title, the back, the everything interior, um, cause for me it was more like, it was like a hobby project. Like I can put it, this, this book isn't necessarily meant to forward my scientific career in any way. It was a lot of the things that I do on the side for projects like this, doing comedy, it, it's about my hobbies. It's about my interests. It's about really feeding the, the child in me that still exists, you know, and the fact that I started doing a lot of this stuff when I was young. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I appreciate that you you've taken in some of the art in that way actually. Because, well, I got uh, the,
0: the feeling that this book is sh- you know, short snippets with a philosophical edge, but yep. grounded in research as well. That's
1: very good explanation for it. Yeah, it's uh, it's exactly that. It's written in short, like stanzas. It's I wouldn't call it quite poetry because it's not written necessarily poetically. But some some of my uh, good friends, I guess, have described it to me after reading it that it's like it's almost like you could replace the word. Like I mean, the an explanation I think is fair, but you could also say like contemplations of life, the universe, the brain, the mind, and consciousness, like, where contemplations is sort of like a philosophical approach to just saying, like, my contemplations of these things, my interpretation of these things based on what I've learned and read in science. And part of my motivation for writing it was the fact that I do have a lot of friends who aren't necessarily from a scientific background, and one of the things I would hear very often about a lot of these things is oh we don't know anything. I remember growing up even people would be like we don't know why we sleep, we don't know what consciousness is, we don't know about death. And I'm like if you read more you would you would like there's there's lots of books about it, there's lots of papers about it. Like I've I've read many and many of them and I've found a lot of those answers because my a lot of my life has been pursuing a lot of these answers because I'm very Uh, into this type of philosophy and this type of science and learning. Like I've always been trying to just say, I guess, find myself, find my place in the universe. And I think I've found a lot of those answers myself. And I felt like I needed to share my interpretation of that with people because... And from my point of view, there are answers for most of those questions that so many people say there's no answers for. And I'm like, there really is. This
0: being the meaning of life, yeah. I, you know, big, big things like that. So yeah. I was taken aback a bit when I was like, okay, so he's saying that if you read this book, you're going to know the meaning of life in a nutshell. In a nutshell. But part of that is, is as we were saying, like the title before the podcast, you were saying, part of that is a sales uh, to get your attention, yeah. pull you in. because. Yeah. Honestly, if someone makes a claim like that, you almost want to read it to be like, oh, le- well, let's just see about yeah. that. And then you end up reading the book anyway, so.
1: Yeah. And then I've already got your money. And then you know, <laughs> you've got the book. But no, honestly, it's like, it is, part of it was, um, you know, I wanted something catchy, and hey, in my book, I call it whatever I want. Yeah, you know? and, fair, uh, fucking uh, up. So when when you put that out there, it's uh, it's something that it is catchy, it does sell uh, like that, like it's, it, when you see it on a shelf like that, for instance, and it's in over 100 countries, you know, like this book's available Ooh. around the world now. And so I was also trying to think, you know, what's something that somebody could read anywhere in the world that that would mean something to them? Similar, what's one of the reasons why I used a a globe as well? Because I'm like, what's something that somebody anywhere in the world can see and relate to? It's the the fucking world, man. (laughs) We're we're all in it. So it's like, that means something to everybody. And why on the back, I use like the cosmos and stars and, you know, looking at uh, galaxies. I suppose
0: the only people who might not recognize a globe would be like those few civilizations that are still undiscovered right? or like a
1: flat earther or something yeah
0: but even they would know they'd be like oh that's that sphere the man keeps trying to sell us like they would have still seen it and and know contextually what people are saying it is yeah hopefully um, which it is (laughs) fucking flat earthers good lord let's not get into that um well man thank you for bringing it and thank you for personalizing it i do want to uh, um is there anything else you would want to say about the book just uh for people that might be interested uh, I mean, I guess if I'm doing like a, a, like pitch, a pitch, I yeah. guess I
1: could just say that it is like it is available pretty much like anywhere you could find it. Like it is in a lot of bookstores, um, like physici- physically, but it is also on Amazon. Like you can order from chapters, Walmart. Uh, if you're in Australia, I think you guys use something called like now I'm not going to be able to remember what what your bookstore is, but it's on like whatever your online book thing is. Does they sell do? It yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> You'll you find it in a kangaroo's pouch somewhere. Well, it was. So. I don't know. <laughs> you know, uh, Barnes & Noble's if you're in the U.S. Like it's basically wherever you can find it, you can just search the title. I'm pretty sure it retails – I mean in Canada it retails for like $17.99 – and, I um, just lost my only Australian and, fan. <laughs> <laughs> He's, uh, and yeah, where uh, it's, it's, the price is different depending on what country you're in, but it's basically uh, just like prorated to wherever you are. And, uh, and I, you mean, yeah, like I mean, yeah, I would appreciate 17, you rated. 17 dollars or something I saw. Yeah, 17 yeah. in Canada. And I guess, I don't know if you showed the inside to the oh, camera okay. or not, but it's like, you get an idea of like, so the way that it's written was sort of in this style kind where it's like page. in just clips uh, of things. So like so the whole thing is written. In this fashion, which is why I sometimes refer to it more like a, a written in like a poetry style. Very digestible. Yeah, it's a, a lot of people read it in, you know, one sitting. It takes you a couple hours maybe or maybe. I've I, well, I've, That's what's great about having so many people who have read it now and given me feedback on it that I've had friends who told me like, man, I couldn't put it down. Like I literally... I. I Said i sat down i read the entire thing it took me like you know an hour and a half two hours i just sat down i read the whole thing and it was great and i've had other friends who told me like man i gotta like i gotta chill on it like every five pages because they're like i need to like digest i need to think about this yeah yeah. that's how i tend to read a lot too is like i'll uh, which you know, I'll read a lot and then I'll stop. And then I need to really think about that reading. And, you know, a lot of what's in this book is, was inspired by many, many of the books that I've read that answered a lot of these questions. And it led me to deciding you know, I want to write my own version of this basically. And right. write I'm uh, definitely my own. still listening. Yeah, no, I have at it, bro. And, uh, but yeah, yeah it so takes I time to process up. deep shit like that
0: mm-hmm. if you're really, really paying attention. You yeah.
1: Know? So there is like different chapters like I talk about, and, and it's sort of organized in what I hope and from what I've heard from people in a, in a very logical flowing way where it starts off, you know, starting at the beginning of the universe, uh, because that's something else. Like I, I try to get into things like uh, the beginning of the universe, the end of the universe, uh, what we know about. Uh, dark matter, the expansion of the universe. Basically, like, how did life emerge? And that's what I mean by what I'm saying, like, an explanation for life. Like, I'm not talking about, you know, a very God-oriented point of view. I'm saying, how did we start from a single point of infinite density, and how did that point of infinite density expand into something called space-time, and how did that develop galaxies, which led to development of of planets, and how did those planets end up being able to have life on them? Like, those are really complicated questions, but I think there's quite simple answers to them once you break it down. Like, how did we end up with a galaxy? And it's, okay, well, from a physics point of view, when you have a point of infinite density, the only option for a point of infinite density is to expand, because it's infinitely dense. So the only thing that can happen after that is to become... Larger, And as soon as that point expands, you create space and time because now you have two points and you have a distance between those points. And if you measure the distance between those points, what are you using as a unit of measurement? So the distance between that takes time to travel it. So now you have space and you have time. As that gets larger and larger and (laughs) as that expands exponentially, you end up having more space between them. Eventually the universe cooled enough that atoms were able to pool together and start clumping together basically and then as you know billions of years went on the you know that pulled into galaxies which pulled into planets and you know like the earth like I talk about in here the earth was originally so hot it melted itself that's why underneath the crust is is lava and everything, it still exists there today, and all of the heavy metals sunk to the core of the Earth, which is why the Earth's core is largely made of iron, is very magnetic because it was so hot that everything heavy sunk and then everything lighter rose, and then it was so hot in that way that it released gases, and eventually those gases pooled on the surface of the Earth and those gases turned into water, those were water vapors, but gravity held the water vapors so close to the Earth's surface that it eventually pulled into oceans, and oceans eventually led to life forms because when you had enough uh, oceans that existed and uh, it it created plant life. And then the plant life held enough oxygen close to the surface because of gravity. So gravity, again, held the oxygen close, which created our atmosphere. Once you had an atmosphere, that led to more uh, better conditions to have uh, cellular life. So then that led to real life things. And then that life developed and evolved through evolution like Darwinian evolution. And then that's like the first three chapters, you know? And wow. <laughs> I mean, that was a pretty good breakdown.
0: But but isn't it, I mean, philosophically, isn't it just a little bit insane that all those things had to happen perfectly yeah. to, you know, result in us podcasting right now? That's, that's
1: the anthropic <laughs> That's the real principle. trip, yeah. That's, uh, so that's like a whole other read. If you look up something called the anthropic principle, which is basically what you just said, it's the idea that like the world exists the way that it does, because if it didn't, there wouldn't be anybody here to observe it. Oh, like the watcher. Yeah, that sort of thing. It's like, <laughs> if you... I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting, this, like, this concept of observer and things, and then I talk about, yeah, what that means to be conscious, and then the meaning of life, which is really just about being conscious, and... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, manifesting consciousness and taking things from your consciousness and turning it into reality. Because your consciousness, the things that you think about, the things that come from your brain, from your imagination that turn into something real, that's the meaning of life right there. It, it doesn't wow. have to be making something, but the meaning of life is just taking something from your consciousness that didn't exist before and now it exists. What else is... like I would argue you know?
0: sharing that with other people is, mm-hmm. you know, an additional meaning of life. Impossible. 100%. Because, in, because if, I mean, isn't that the argument that if you have like the Mona Lisa on Mars, is it still art? Mm. I've heard that. But if the, no one is there to witness it or observe it or be in its presence, yeah. does it cease to be artwork? Well, what would you say? That's, it's just a brain scratcher. I like that one.
1: Yeah, no, that, that's an interesting question. I think I would say that to the person who created it, it was still uh, meaningful to them True, in terms of their meaning of life um, but to the greater, like to the greater universal consciousness, it, it is certainly meaningful to share those things with other people. But I think that there's still a lot of people who maybe create things and find deep meaning in their life that don't care about sharing that with yeah, other people. That's true, and that's still very meaningful way of living. I think, but for some people, it is really nice to share that and to, like, have it displayed. Uh, like, for any, you know, basement podcast or basement artists out there, I think it still gives you deep meaning for being alive for whatever it is that you're creating or whatever it is that you're doing. Just the fact that you're alive and doing it is the meaning. So it's one of those, like, kind of like a... Um, Neil deGrasse, Neil deGrasse Tyson, like, dick kind of scientist answers where, like, the answer is, like, it's meaningful because it's meaningful. Smart-ass and science. And you like, yeah. well, that's not quite what I was looking for. But you're, uh, but it's it, it comes to a level of, like, metacognition to, I guess, be able to appreciate some of those sentiments. And um, I think it's something – I don't know if I have it on my website yet, but I've been meaning to put it up, actually, because – what I wanted to do with this book too is like put like a link or like on my website that if you go there that I have a list of like recommendations of here's all of the other books that I read. Because I think if you just read this book, you might not necessarily, you know, come out with, with the insight or or all of the thoughts that I'm having because it's – for me, it's writing this book plus the other – this whole list of other books that I read that contributed to this overall – picture that I now have of the universe and stuff and uh, stuff that I've spent a lot of time thinking about.
2: Let me just ask a little thing here. Um, there are these things, these these concepts that are introduced to us that are difficult to grapple with. Um, you know, one of them used to be infinity, although that one didn't bother me too much because it just keeps going. Nah, yeah. I can go with that. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to the creation of the universe and the the big bang, the initial spark, mm-hmm. First of all, it's mind bending that there's this infinitesimally small point of matter or mass mm-hmm. that explodes and has populated the entire universe. I mean, that's, but where did that little spark, th- that little piece of ultra dense material, mm-hmm. where'd that come from?
1: A w- wonderful thought to have. And from what I have read... And I, I don't expect that, you to know the answer, by uh, the way. I, I, I have a good answer He's like, for oh, it. Right, really right, right. <laughs> no, I do. I like that's I think that's a fantastic question. It's a question I've asked myself many times, and, and I'd say in the last number of years I did find an answer for that. And, and the answer that is currently most represented by the scientific community today is that, that infinite point of density came from the universe before us. Mm. So time is when eternal. They collapsed yeah so it's the time is eternal there's three ways that that, that, that's
2: sorry but that just takes the question one step removed if you you get into the cyclical aspect you know
1: yes uh, yeah in a way but uh, so then you might say okay well then where did that one it it had to
2: start somewhere
1: uh, but that's where the scientists would disagree. They would say it just always has been and it always will be, and it never has to, it doesn't position. have to have a beginning.
2: And that's harder for me to wrap my I head see, around I than see. infinity. Okay. Infinity makes sense to me. Yeah, That doesn't make sense because mm-hmm. in my world, everything comes from something, yeah. right? You know, like, I don't know.
0: To me, when you bring up infinity, one thing that always bent my brain was uh, eternity more specifically. Mm-hmm. And in that... Uh, It trips me out to think that, okay, if atheists are right and when I'm dead, I'm just dead. Oh, shit, I'm never going to do anything ever again, Mm -hmm. ever. If you really (laughs) let that sink in, it'll fucking bum you out for the afternoon. But the alternative, something like heaven, I equally go like, okay, so even if I'm doing the funnest shit forever, like, you know, just eternity is such a strange concept to me.
1: Yeah, that... Thought and your thought, Brian, and and like death. I mean, I I was thinking about this when I was like a child and it absolutely like tore me up. And I was like, I don't I couldn't wrap my head around it. And I still wouldn't say I guess that even like I wouldn't say necessarily that even I I can fully wrap my head around it. But I, I am I would subscribe to the line of scientific thinking that there doesn't need to be a beginning. Uh, That it just always has been, and in theory it always will be, and that there's this sort of, there is like a cyclical aspect of it where our universe is 14 and a half billion years old, but before, no, sorry, I think it's like 13.8 billion years old, it's about 14, um, almost 14 billion years old, but before that, there was just another universe that existed and in fact according to a lot of einstein's theory so one of the other books that should be on this list that i'm talking about is a book by einstein it's a compilation of his essays or sorry this one is a it's a book by stephen hawking that i'm thinking of actually that's called black holes and baby universes and basically he talks about how like there is all these like other little pockets of universes and this gets into like uh like a metaphysical point of view when we get into like dimensions and we talk about you know string like string theory instead? uh you could think about it that way as an alternate I've been watching what or... if that's
0: why i mentioned the watcher oh, i yeah, don't know yeah, if you're yeah. a nerd enough for that one but i
1: have watched a bit of that show i think like what if
0: or is that um it's a cartoon uh, marvel's doing right now that focuses on all the mcu but it's animated instead okay. and it's just like what if Black Panther became Star-Lord or or like... Oh, that's sick. They're just, you know, one-shot things and then that's Mm -hmm. it and you move on to the next one.
1: Like per episode... But there's a right. guy
0: called the Watcher, and this is all from the comics. His name right. is Uatu, and he's from this race mm. of beings that they observe and record everything, right. but they keep, they're not allowed to interfere, in,
1: right. even though they always end up fucking interfering. Or like you guys uh, suck at your job, <laughs> <laughs> like the Timekeepers and Loki and stuff like that. Yes, it's like, like, yeah, it's very similar. Okay, no, that's not the what if I was thinking. Well, actually, no, the Timekeepers interfere simple. all the
0: time. Yeah, there yeah, was a, there was
2: shows. another what if series. I know the one you mean, because. Um, I ran across a couple of times and and they would take the same things that I do. What if this, but there was much more serious questions. Oh, more like a historical,
0: like history channel type show with real people and stuff.
1: Or like, it was like, maybe it was on... um, one of the sci-fi or maybe it wasn't sci-fi, but it was, uh, but yeah, I think I've seen something like that. I don't know if I ever watched it on television, but I think I've seen like YouTube videos of it. Like, what? Yeah. I didn't uh, mean to derail. uh, No, that's, that's fine, man. I think it's nice. I love the different perspectives and actually sounds like a dope show. Um, Yeah. It's pretty
0: cool. I mean, if you're, if you're already following along with those characters and yeah.
1: Yeah. But I guess just to wrap up before we go to some else it it seems, I guess that the, yeah, the notion of there just that there is the, Beginning, if you can kind of get past the idea that there needs to be a beginning, that there just is and always kind of has been a universe, but likely multiple universes, the idea of a multiverse, and that even in our universe, which is 14 billion years old or so, uh, that there's multiple universes inside it. So like our galaxy, we're in the Milky Way galaxy, uh, at the center of our galaxy is a supermassive black hole. And at the center of almost every galaxy is a supermassive black hole. And that inside those black holes, because... So when you get into, like, early universe physics, so this is something I kind of became obsessed with when I was, like, writing the book. And uh, I must have purchased more than 100 books while I was writing this book because I really wanted to, like, nail down the research. And I went through... It took me a year to write it, um, and then more than a year, I guess, to write it. But then also I went through, like, three different, like, print drafts before I actually, like landed on this copy officially. And I was like, okay, I kept doing revisions and revisions and then rereading. And I was like, okay, I need to fix this because I was like, how can I talk about the expansion of the universe if I haven't already addressed this factor? Like I needed it to be very logical. So if you read one point to the next, that each page sort of takes you to the next thing. And then I'm like, okay, I can't. I was like, I'm, I'm on chapter four and I'm bringing up this, but like, I didn't talk about this thing yet in chapter two. So it's like I needed to rewrite chapter two now because I'm like, I got to include that. And then it made it very difficult as well because I stuck to this like seven lines per page, 10 pages per chapter sort of thing where I wanted to stay within that frame because that was just how, from an artistic point of view, how I decided to do it. So I couldn't just write forever, uh, which is, you know, I, I could have wrote this as like a 400-page book maybe, but I really wanted to do it in this way because I wanted to make it digestible, And so approachable. Speak, and, yeah, yeah. Something for... And that's also why, I mean, like there's, there's, I thought about calling it like a brief explanation for light, but there's already like a brief history of time. Mm-hmm. There is already, um, sh- uh, what is the Neil deGrasse Tyson one? He's like, uh, uh, oh yeah. Like astrophysics, um, for people in a hurry. Yeah. And like yes, those, like I I've read, read all that. those and those were large, you know, influences for this book as well. Among with like black holes, baby universes, all the Yuval Noah Harari books. Uh, he's the guy who wrote Sapiens and Homo Deus and, um, whatever one came next, a few of those, like fantastic are these, books. these are ringing bells for you, Dad? Yeah, yeah, I'm familiar with them. I haven't read them, but I've heard a lot about. them. They're amazing books. Like, I I think that uh, a lot of the anthropological stuff that I got came from, like, the Yuval Noah Harari series among, then I, you know, I had tons of Atlas that I read, and then lots of, like, galaxy books. And then a lot of the physics stuff came from a lot of Einstein, Stephen Hawking, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, like I said, like I must've bought more than a hundred books, like throughout my time reading this. And then I had like 30 books checked out from my library of like just things I was looking up. And then I'd read things online at like CERN. And when I was in Switzerland, I went to CERN multiple times. That's like the Switzerland, uh, super collider and all that. Yeah, exactly. And like learned about the beginning of the universe, literally at CERN. And, uh, so I guess, wow, I tried to apply some of that stuff and put it in here. And I think. Follow that line of thinking, and you'll eventually find uh, find those answers.
0: Cool, man. Um, I actually wanted to ask you what you think of the Mandela effect.
1: The Mandela effect, like Berenstein yeah, Bears, and all that. Yeah, you know what we, I'm talking about. Yeah, we did a well. Jackie had like a segment of that on on my podcast. Uh, oh, I was just going to talk yeah, to you about that next. No, so. yeah, did, did she she did a whole segment of that where that was on her uh, Jackie's fucked up show and tell, and we we talked about her well, about the Mandela effect. I don't know, man. It it trips me out. Like, there's a lot of... Like, I don't have a good explanation for that. I guess you, you can ask me about the beginning of the universe. I'll give you an explanation But the Mandela effect. I, got I just think it's interesting. <laughs> yeah, I don't think
0: anyone has a good answer. A lot of people it's think like, it's bogus, but um, the Berenstein Bears one really freaks me mm-hmm. out just because I feel like I have... Quote unquote evidence because I know myself to a degree right. that I would have looked for any chance to make a joke about Baron Stain. Mm-hmm. And instead, I remember always trying to f- remember if it was E before I right. in Steen. And yet I pick up the book now from my childhood that I still have. And it says stain and it just tweaks your brain and it feels wrong. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess that's the argument people make with the Mandela effect, but the Mandela one is even crazier. The people who believe that he died in prison and they remember his funeral and all that being on TV and, and it's
1: apparently a large amount of people. So it's, it's pretty weird. It's really weird. Yeah. And there's so many good examples of Mandela effects and things like that. And then, I had one happen to me even just recently, which isn't really one anybody could relate to, but it was like I had to submit this, uh, like, a grant for some money for research. And, excuse me, I, I, uh, beer's a bad choice say for I'll podcasting. I keep fucking, I'm like Bert Kreischer in this thing when he keeps having to clear his <laughs> Or Rick from... Like, uh... Rick and Morty, yeah, yeah, like I'm um, like beer, man. Whoa, it just fucking makes me, and also my <laughs> sister made me chili before this, so maybe that's oh, that, that might be it. Yeah, chili, old. that's what we were eating. And I don't usually, I haven't had chili in years, it's fucking good though, but I mean, like, I feel like that's uh, just makes for a bad before speaking for, but uh, she uh, at least it's coming out this end, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah, I can be thankful for that up in here. Uh, yeah. With this, anyway, this thing that happened to me, and I like submitted this, and anyways, the whole thing, this man, and I literally thought about the Mandela effect. I was like, "Is this fucking happening to me right now?" I was like, "This happened to me right now," because uh, with all these grants, when, when you submit them to, like, basically, you're as a researcher, you're trying to get money, so you apply for these grants, and they're super, super anal about like. You have 4 pages to write on this, 2 pages like if you go over like one line like you're fucked. Like that's, that's you can't so weird. <laughs> you got 4 pages, no more than 4 and your margins have to be, you know, set margins, page sizes, it's all precise and it's all outlined and you must follow those guidelines. And I had 2 pages for one of these sections that I had to do. I did 2 pages on it and I knew it was 2 pages and I made sure it was 2 pages and then I submitted it. And then I looked at it later and it was like Two and a half pages, I was like, what? I was like, I fucking know that this I was like, I like I mean I double checked this, I triple, I quadruple oh, checked. Weird. This, somebody I changed the font it. size. And I'm like, somebody, yeah, I was like, this has been tampered with, man. Like this isn't and it was, but no one would it have was had shifted. Access. And I'm like, no, and this was like days later, and it was just my like anal retentive brain is like, you know, I'm gonna just go with it. like let's have a look at it. Like yeah. I I submitted it, let's have a review over what I did and see how good I feel about it again. And then I got like so mad because like at myself basically so it was like, wait, 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 wait. Like I didn't just totally screw myself, did I? Because I know I had two pages for this i made it two pages now it's more than two pages and i'm like this isn't good because they could literally just throw out the whole thing like based on that and i'm like oh, sure. and i just couldn't understand i was like is this like a mandela effect and then i went back like a couple days later i looked again it was two pages i'm like what so i was just i'm i'm still stumped i don't understand what's going and you on you only
0: ever viewed it through the same uh, medium like-
1: uh well that's the thing so when it was it was proofread by um some staff that that like work for our lab basically. And then I specifically emailed to them because actually I noticed they did it, they pulled it into Google Docs because there was a few staff that proofread it. And then there it was more than two pages. So I, I pulled it offline, off Google Docs, back to a Word doc, it was two pages. Then I sent them, sent it back to them to submit because they they had to submit it for me. And then I, I told them I was like, hey, I pulled it offline. I didn't do my editing on Google Docs because I noticed it changed margins, it changed fonts, it was something changed. So I pulled it back offline, sent it back to them, and then I looked at it through um, like the system viewer basically. And then I looked at it with the system viewer like through the email when you just like preview the doc. And then I looked at it again in my, uh like, in my Word doc, just on my computer. And it's like, it had changed back and forth. And I knew I had different drafts So this of it, could be a technical. But I made sure that it was like, yeah. So it's, that's, I guess, where it comes down to for me for Mandela effects and things. It was like, maybe there's just some technical glitchy bullshit that goes
2: on. Yeah. Maybe you didn't I notice, think, like.
0: Well, for sure, when you go through the, the list of all of them that are out there now, there's a bunch of that them that could. seem pretty explainable.
1: Did you see that one recently that came out about the, uh uh it was like, Well, their only conclusion was that like this guy who was doing a Mario episode, or like he was doing people who like do the like speed race through Mario, like trying to beat the game super fast. That he like ended up with some glitch that they said was like they concluded at least that it seemed to be due to like a quantum level type glitch that there was uh, because there is like neutrinos and things passing through us all the time. That they're like this could only have happened if he had like if one bit in the game got flipped. So it was like a bit flip, I think they called it. So instead of a zero, it became a one or a one or zero, that they said that that got flipped and then it got him this glitch to, to get through it. And then there was this big prize money that they put out that was like, if anybody can repeat this glitch, um, you'll win all this money. And then nobody could repeat the glitch, but then somebody basically programmed... Um, to see what happened. And then there was... The the way that the glitch occurred was through a flip of the bit in the game. So one became a zero or a zero became a one yeah. in one little place. And then he was able to get to this, like, slightly higher level because it changed the height of Mario uh, by whatever, tiny, tiny point. <laughs> okay. And then now they... So it seemed like... The solution that the guy found was that, okay, this occurs if you flip this bit. But then there was no explanation for the guy as who was why doing it, it. It was like, well, why yeah. would that bit flip for me? And they literally – well, the they interpreted it as from like a quantum level. They're like, oh, they must have like interacted with some – High
2: you know, energy particle.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Some kind <laughs> That's of neutrino crazy. solar flare or some shit. And Wow. Yeah. I think from a psychological point of view, there's definitely got to be some Mandela explanations too. I bet there's got to be research There's on
0: one – um, About that movie. There was a movie that actually came out called Kazam with, um, Mm -hmm. or yeah, with, uh, what's his name? Shazam. Yeah. Shaq. Shaq. Thank you. And all these other people swear they've seen a movie called Shazam with Sinbad. Yes. (laughs) And like they swear, even though it's that one seems like that's just your memory is not (laughs) on.
2: I remember that movie with Sinbad. Yeah. There you go. (laughs) It doesn't exist.
0: The movie was kazam with Shaq, and it was about a little boy finds a genie and all that but some i remember swear what? there's a sinbad movie called shazam
2: there you go jesus i gotta go look that uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's so amazing that's that's unreal. oh that makes me happy uh super true i wanted to ask you because i saw it again on the back of the book <laughs> and um you're the ceo and director of the canada neuro inc is that yeah. okay because they brought yeah. me to a the link on your website was a 404 Oh, really? What did you... But then when I actually just typed it in, it, wrong, it which, brought me what, up. Like
1: through my LinkedIn maybe or something? No, or? through the
0: Map Buchanan Studios when I clicked the actual... There was like a text part you could click and oh, okay, that brought okay. me to a 404. Oh, I, but, I should
1: look into that. Like
0: yeah. Uh, sorry, that's what I meant. I thought it was error 404. I thought yeah, no, I know what you mean. Yeah, Computer yeah, yeah. lingo. Was based, I was trying to be yeah, cool. I knew,
1: I knew what you I meant. don't know computers. <laughs> Um, yeah, I maintain all those websites. I should probably look well, at, yeah, I uh, at them Well, yeah, I'm glad I haven't looked at that. If I brought that to your no, attention. Yeah, thanks. I didn't realize that. Uh, but
0: I did find a website that seemed to be the same thing. It was a place located in Ottawa. Yeah. And they, they offer neuro assurance.
1: Yeah, yeah. So
0: insurance for your brain. And it was, again, a lot of athletes and military. Yeah. yeah. Different plans and stuff. Yeah. I just thought that was an interesting concept, insuring mm-hmm. your brain. But it makes sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, um, that's cool that you found that too, actually. Yeah, so that's uh, www.canadaneuro.com. Um, yeah, I'm the founder and CEO of this company. It's a company I started a couple years ago toward the tail end of my PhD. So I had, uh, I guess my plan A in exiting my PhD was um, – get into an Ivy League school like Stanford so that I could come back and, you know, become a full professor out here. Mm. Or, you know, I applied to Harvard lots of times and I tried Oxford and I, I, you know, failure is a big part of my life as it is for most. And the point is to just keep on doing it. You know, I didn't get into any of those and I did get Stanford. So I'm super stoked on that. But one of the other plan, like my plan B, I guess, which is still like a long-term plan for life really is like something I'll work on for 10 years was, um, yeah, this, this company called Canada Neuro. And that was like, okay, so once I'm done my PhD, I want to, I want to, Either get into one of these uh, fellowship positions so that I can parlay that into like a full professorship or go full time for my company and then, you know, go the entrepreneur route and uh, work through building a company that does this. And so basically, uh, in short, it's like a private brain scanning company because there's not really a lot of places you can do that in, in Canada or in Ottawa, especially Uh, well, I shouldn't say especially because I guess in Ottawa there is a couple places here and there's probably more in Ottawa than there is in most places in Canada. Like, you know, there is in like Toronto, Montreal. It's like a big city thing. Uh, But the goal was really, yeah, to be able to provide like private brain scanning to people who, um, I guess, have the the means for that. But really our focus is on, at the moment, at least on like military partners and athletes, uh, pro athletes and amateur athletes. Um, But the idea of neuroassurance uh, was something I came up with a few years ago, which is like one of the problems with doing uh, brain injury assessments is that patients will come into our clinic, like the clinic I worked at for many years where we published that machine learning study on concussion, for instance, which is, I mean, I'm, I got a shout out for that clinic too. They're called the Seeker Center. They're uh, not far. They're down on Maryville and uh, they're near the Royal and the Civic Hospital here. Cool. And um, that's where I developed a lot of these skills even more was like learning about the industry side of all this, where I worked there for many years and then started my own company in a similar regard, but focused really on the athletes. So they're ultimately a chronic pain clinic, but they had a brain clinic there, which I, so I was director of research and a manager of that brain clinic. And I sort of ran that clinic, um, and all the brain stuff that they did and then started developing a research program there. And, what I realized was that one of the issues is these patients would come in from a car accident uh, we would scan their brain and then look at how we could fix it with like neuromodulation brain stimulation things like that but it, it one of the challenges of that is that we don't have a baseline to compare it to mm, so injury we don't know yeah we don't know what your brain looked like before that so wow, so what, what we do is we would compare it to a, a healthy, database like a normative database of like a thousand people who are all healthy who have donated brain scans and things like that and this is a database that exists um, from Russia basically and we leverage that database if you come in with a brain injury we take your brain scan then we compare that brain scan to this normative database then we would see what's abnormal about your brain compared to all these healthy brains and then we try to fix that That's a good approach. It's currently like the best approach, except if you you know, uh, except what my company does now, which is we collect baselines for people who, you know, pre-deployment for military, uh, or we collect like a baseline at the beginning of people have a high risk for incurring one of these injuries. Exactly. If you are at high risk of maybe having a brain injury, come to our clinic, get a brain assessment and then we don't charge you very much for that initial assessment. So basically that's why it's like an insurance model. You basically just pay to like have your brain scanned and then the insurance aspect is like, if you do incur a brain injury, then it's like you, you pay like a deductible kind of thing where so you're not paying all this money in, unless you actually get injured. So, mm. But the, the key factor is we already have a scan of your brain on file from the beginning of your season or b- before your deployment. So if you get a brain injury, then you can come back to our clinic we have a brain scan to compare it to we'll scan your brain again and that brain scan we do like really quickly so that's also part of our model is like you can come in and like we guarantee that you'll get your brain scanned within like 24 to 48 hours after the injury which also makes a difference because sometimes the patients that would come to our clinic before in the previous model like car accidents they might not be coming to us until like months after their until there's some you know sometimes longer and then they see side effects so yeah. we get you in right away we can compare what your brain looks like and then we'll even do follow-up care, and then you're only really getting charged if you get a brain injury. And it's not like, I mean, when you say it like that, it's like, oh, so you're like making these people pay who get injured. But no, the the, the point is, if you've got a whole team of 30 people, and we're going to charge you a certain value to get all 30 people scanned, we don't want to charge you the full value of the whole, because the real cost is actually in doing the interpretation. The scanning is expensive, but the part that's more expensive is having a professional doctor or neurologist, somebody interpret that scan and actually process all that data. So basically, we cut out that cost by saying, we're not going to do all that unless you get an injury because otherwise we don't really need to process it. We have it. It's always there. We can always process it. The
0: neurologist will love it if it's necessary.
1: And then that's... So then if you get an injury... Then we have your scan on file. Then you pay your deductible, basically. And that's why it's called Neuroassurance, because it's kind of like an insurance model uh, so that we can better help you and, and help your brain. And we have a lot of research initiatives too. I created something called the Digital Brain Bank, uh, which is this idea of like a lot of people are like organ donors. So, you know, a lot of people when they die, they're willing to donate their organs. But, like, why not donate a digital scan of your brain while you're alive? That can yeah. help lots of people as well and it's something like a big data approach so you know like i talked about that normative database from russia has like a thousand scans like my lifetime goal is i want to get like a hundred thousand scans like i want to have like a population baseline get hundreds of thousands because there's some things you can only elucidate when you have big enough numbers
0: well and wouldn't uh, brains possibly be regionally specific in the way that you know asian people look different than black people and there are physical differences between different people from different parts of the world so i would imagine that might parlay into brain shape or size or...
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm sure that there, yeah, there is in, in some ways, like, yeah, the, the sh- brain shape, size, uh, the, the type of activity, and even just, like, mindset and cultural, you know, implications, genetic implications of, like... Dietary stuff know, might even affect... Di- exactly. Uh, yeah. There's lots of things that could say, you know, like, you know, why the people's brains in this particular... Re- like, for instance, a lot of... Uh, like one of my, my PhD supervisors one of you know he had a lot of research where he would have brain scans from people in Mexico and you know they would do a lot of research on those brain scans related to pollution because there's so much more pollution there than there is here mm. and it there's not a you know the they're still very similar in so many ways to us. But one thing that we do know is that everybody from this particular region was exposed to high levels of pollution um, during childhood, for instance. Okay. So now we have a brain scan of them and then we can compare it to people with brain scans in Canada where, you know, pollution's not so bad. Hmm. So there's all these environmental factors that could also definitely like influence. It would be so brand. beneficial to have like a large database yeah. everywhere and just keep adding to that. So there's a lot of initiatives like that that are going on where people will do that for different brain scans. Like there's big MRI databases, EEG databases, but like the largest one that I'm aware of is only, got you know, like thousands of brains. And so, you know, we want to go bigger basically. And, you know, we're working with private partners and, you know, different investors and things like that. And if you're one of those people and you're interested, feel free to reach out to us. And uh, we do collaboration through universities, but as well as, yeah, like private partners and trying to build that database. And that's sort of one of our research initiatives. And then the more data you get, the better models you can make, like with machine learning techniques and uh, creating like big, deep neural nets and stuff. Like really, it's like you got to feed lots of data into those. And the more data you can feed into them, the better uh, accuracy you can get, the more sophisticated they get, and the more like questions you can answer basically. So you could kind of like query a database. So if you had thousands of people and you knew, you know, these these number of people all had depression and a brain injury, and then these people all had like PTSD, and then these all had this, and you can kind of start to parse those things out. But if you've only got like 10 or 50 of these, but then you compare that to somebody who had a, a database that had thousands of those, you get a lot more richness. And, yeah, for yeah. sure.
0: Wow. Man, that's so awesome. This has been so interesting, and thanks again for the book. Yeah, you're very welcome. I, uh, I it's, think it's uh, brave and interesting and cool that you decided to, like you've described this as artwork as well as obviously mm. having a, a strong scientific edge. So I think that's cool because, you know, not everyone would want to cross those boundaries because some people might not like mm-hmm. People don't like it when you, when you do stuff like that, you know, and break yeah. the rules. I saw one guy on Amazon, your only negative review. Have you seen this? No, I haven't. He... No. Uh, he he said that this was invisible sky sky god baloney, and he was like <laughs> questioning your credentials and whether uh, Amazon That's should hilarious. even put this in the science category or whatever. I
1: have not seen that yet. No, oh, he sounded like a disgruntled reviews. gentleman. That's funny. No, I mean, hey, it's probably, it's bound to happen at some point. That's well, your a intelligence
0: the... is very clear after even talking to you for a few minutes, so.
1: Oh, well, that's very so nice. fuck you, random Amazon guy. <laughs> guy. Yeah, did he even leave a name? I mean, there's was just <laughs> no, there hiding mean, behind his. I just uh, saw it briefly.
0: Yeah. I, thought, I thought that was a funny little. I don't little... check
1: that all that often, but no, that's funny. That's the thing about art, you know. It's only uh, half yours, right? Oh yeah, and all the other yeah. reviews were super positive, so <laughs> uh, that's good. Dad, do you have anything
0: else uh, related to science and all in the the book and all that before I move on to comedy? Because I know we've we've been going for a while. And mm-hmm. yeah,
2: no, I'm I'm good. But I would agree this has been a fascinating discussion, and kudos to you for doing such an ambitious thing. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, reading it, and I'll get back to you on it.
1: Oh, well, thank thank you very much, I appreciate that. And like, uh, you know, it means a lot to have people read it. And I think, you know, like I, the way I approach it is from, you know, a, a certain level, and I think that. If you're not I mean there's a lot of people out there with different beliefs and different points of view. And if you don't agree with those things, maybe you're not gonna like the book and that's you know, that's, that's on okay. you basically. Yeah. Maybe you won't like my comedy, maybe you won't like a lot of things about me, and like that's yeah. just you know, it is what it is for whoever you are. Like a lot of people have different opinions and that's what's cool about I mean, like what you said, like brave, like you doing this too. It's like you you know, you make this, you put this thing out there. There I'm sure you get lots of great feedback, but I mean, the nature of even YouTube or like anywhere yeah. that has online reviews, you get lots of of conflicting results of people who just like have no nothing better to do with their time than to well be my negative, show doesn't you know, have like whopping to,
0: viewership for the most part uh, when Spendy came on was probably the biggest where it got yeah. into thousands and even then, people were pretty nice. I it was mainly that's really nice. positive, reinforcing stuff. There was a few people saying that me vaping was was a shitty host thing to do, and I'm like, fuck you! I created the show to be yeah. in an environment that makes yeah. me comfortable, just and chillin'. I ask every guest yeah. beforehand if if it mm-hmm. would bother them. So shit like that. And when we had the plexiglass up, when we didn't really know what to do during right. the pandemic and I spending just happened to, happen to, yeah, I was just they had them at the fucking bank at the liquor yeah. store, but <laughs> some conspiracy guys like, oh, it doesn't matter, and well, there's always you. gonna like, be somebody like that. Who just is yeah. talking bullshit and uh um yeah. Uh what was I gonna say? Shit. Oh yeah, well let's move on to comedy because I don't want to run out of time and uh sure, man, you are yeah. a funny dude. Even going to your website, Mac Map Studios.com. You had a nice little compilation uh clips of you doing stand up and Thanks, man. I yeah. was really laughing at a ton of stuff, man. Even uh but this, this kind of is the question I wanted to get to is when you were like, say, doing your interview for Stanford, right. were you nervous about them finding uh, your show with Jackie in episode one, you know, onesie <laughs> with a dick sleeve, or, or you had a joke about... Um About having, like, a nice penis, and then it's because the lady at the STD clinic says, like, oh, you have a sick penis, (laughs) and you took it to be, like, like, sick, sick, but yeah, anyways, so were you, like, you know, a little apprehensive or nervous about them, or (sighs) did you want to say, hey, this is me, take it or leave it?
1: No, 100% was not... Hope, hoping they wouldn't find it necessarily, I guess, which is... Well, it's not uh, hidden very well in that sense. Yeah, I mean, like, it's out there on the internet. The only thing that really discriminates between the two is just the name searches. Like, if you search okay. only map Buchanan, you'll mainly find that. If you use my first name, you it it's a little less down the Google line, I guess. Like, if you spend 10 minutes, you you could find it, I'm sure. Well, and also if you got the book,
0: then you're going to be linked to it that way. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. There is some cross-promotion, and I think I'm going to get over that type of apprehensiveness eventually. Like, it's always just, like, a little bit of, like, imposter syndrome, I guess, too, where it's like I am – worried for myself that it's like I don't want to compromise these uh, scientific aspects of my career just because I like comedy and stuff and I don't think that it would necessarily be interpreted that way by a lot of people and maybe I could have been outright with it but uh, I was told actually like many years ago because I started doing comedy when I was like 19 or so maybe like almost 10 years ago at this point I was like 19, 20 and at one point, I had put... Because I, I won a Yuck Yucks competition in 2013 in the GTA. Oh, cool. And I used to have that on my resume. But w- 2013, I didn't have a lot of academic stuff on my resume either. I had, like, maybe one academic-type job that I worked. And then I had that on there. And I remember applying for some stuff and, like, getting feedback that they're like, you should just take that off. They're like, it's not relevant, you know? Like it's, Interesting. They also told me for other stuff, too. Like, I'd submitted some, like, photography and had photography featured in... Um, some like showcases and they're like, yeah, get rid of that too. It's not relevant. Like, Both of those seem of so your... weird to me and like yeah. places
0: I wouldn't want to work. I even actually <laughs> once uh, I contacted a guy who was like a president of a decent sized board game company, still up and coming mm-hmm. or whatever. And um, I just through talking to him kind of introduced myself a bit and he ended up like offering me like a suit. It was sort of like a job interview. He didn't have a job to offer at the moment, but mm-hmm. he was really drawn in partially by the fact that I said I, I did dabbled in stand up or whatever and uh i think that makes sense though because you're going to assume about that person that they're not maybe intimidated easily Mm -hmm. that they aren't afraid of people or social environments because you kind of have to get over that to go and stand in front of a bunch of people yeah um so and and similarly with photography like anything where you're taking a that that you need a keen eye for Mm. and 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 attention to detail these are all useful things in any Mm. workforce in my opinion but
1: No, I mean that's a nice take on it. No, I think that's a good take on it. I think a lot of my friends have told me that it's silly to feel that way or like you know, I would you know, not to take it that way, that of course it seems like it would add dimensionality to my resume and like things like that, and that it would make me seem more interesting, I guess. But I guess I've just took it from the point of view, I mean, like, you know, like look, we've been all across the spectrum of like a book and my company and in the work and the research that like there are enough things that when I'm doing interviews for these places, I'm like, Look, I don't need to, I'll, I'll keep it focused on the shit that they care about that's and smart. that's relevant to them because I feel like I have enough stuff to say in that regard that I don't even need to get into the other stuff. But at the same time, I was like, you, you, I mean, you asked like, was I worried? I was kind of like, I don't think I do any comedy that's like too offensive or anything, but I mean, it's really just the shitty age of like cancel culture and stuff yeah. where people would be like, oh man, if you're even gonna talk about something like onesie with a dick sleeve or like, you know, you yeah, even yeah. say things like that, then it's like, how could we? You know, we can't have you it's on our team or anymore. something. But like, well, and to be fair, know. not
0: everyone is in the position where they're going to Stanford. Like the the expectations are a little higher, and and I mm-hmm. can respect that. You know,
1: and maybe they'll be totally cool with. It. I think like once I'm out there, and I'm probably gonna do comedy in San Francisco, and like nice. try to yeah, get comedy to. out in, in, in the in comedy California, store and can. like get into all that. Like i would be very excited to do that, and maybe at that point, like I bring it up, I'll talk about the fact that I maybe do comedy. But it wasn't something I wanted to bring up right away because I get concerned. I'm like, oh, I hope it doesn't like preclude me from getting this other position or something or, or somehow interfere.
0: Yeah, this is why I don't think I would generally be great in a lot of sort of official type jobs or whatever you want to call it. Because I feel like I find it so hypocritical how there's this veneer of like ooh, we're so professional and everything has to be so blah 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 but everybody's still just people everyone's still shits everyone's still this horny everyone you know yeah. what i mean and i hate when people try to take that away mm-hmm. and pretend it's not there and put this this layer of like business blah, 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 shit on top because i i just feel like it's so easy to see right through it and then i'm not taking anyone seriously and then i just feel like everyone's full of shit <laughs> yeah and i don't like being in that kind of an environment yeah. as opposed to maybe a little more chaotic where people are, are a little you know, uh, no filter or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, maybe why I don't mind comedy clubs. Stuff. Yeah.
1: No, I mean, that's why I love the clubs. I love, Doing comedy for those reasons, like everybody is chill in like a different way, and so far, for the like, most all the people I've known at Stanford and like even like my current like bosses through my PhD, like nobody's really taken aback by the, the fact that I do comedy yet. So I don't really have much good evidence for yeah. reasons to hide it. Even well, that's it's the just other like side a of personal it. Personal thing of like I'm 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 just I don't want it to interfere, and that would really suck if it did. And it'd it's be not like, how you, you lead if into it, it, it. it did. but it's uh yeah. Yeah. No,
0: that's that's the other side of it. Is it's so great when you when you make an expectation that someone's gonna judge you for something, and then they're like, "No, nah, man, I smoke." <laughs> yeah. Those are the best moments. That is true, the yeah. principal's like selling you weed or something. A real relief. Yeah, I don't know if that's ever happened to anyone. <laughs> that would be <laughs> yeah. epic, actually. If you were buying weed from your principal, you're like well, the coolest
1: yeah. kid in high school. I think one day too. Like now that I've kind of made it this far, and that like eventually, I'm hoping that that sort of sensation will go away eventually. Where it's like okay, I've made it enough where, like, they can't, you know, they're not going to deny me for this just because I have that because I've already got... Or at some point, if they hadn't noticed
0: for long enough, it could be hopefully grandfathered in as, like, hey, I never tried to hide this. You guys didn't notice. Now you're going to bring it up 15 years later? Yeah, yeah, It's like uh, some statute of limitations on that (laughs) shit. (laughs) Um, Okay, well, let's talk about the show you did with Jackie because Jackie Graham, she's really awesome. I always end up on shows with her, and she, the last two shows, uh... I think we're back to back pretty much in a mm-hmm. week. And she was annoyed the second time because I, like, and I can't not do it. I, I especially now because I try not to smoke before shows. Mm. But the second I, I finish my set, I go downstairs and smoke a joint. Okay. I don't care who's going up. Yeah. And both times we did shows together, she went up right after me. So oh, she was she like, missed her. <laughs> Yeah. And I was like, Yo, it's not personal at all. This is just a ritual. You this know, this is a set I could I'm OCD. Miss you, yeah. Like, so. but uh, I have seen her perform before and she is really, really funny. And yeah. you guys do like a, I want to say it's almost like a YMH, your mom's house, type of yeah, vibe, which yeah. doesn't surprise me with Jackie being involved. Yeah, uh, I know how big of a fan she is of that. Um, so it's you guys watching kind of interesting or hilarious internet clips and, mm-hmm. you know, just
1: yeah. talking about it. And just shooting the shit on it. That That's basically it. Yeah, it was my approach at, like, okay, it's the pandemic I'd started a podcast like the year before, kind of uh, in January 2020, which was like more like an interview style where I was trying to meet mostly with like comedians or producers, musicians, music producers, that sort of thing. and like, I mean, a lot of what you've managed to like grow and continue doing here for so long. And then basically the pandemic started, you know, February, March, 2020. So like I had done, I think six episodes of that, six or seven episodes right until the pandemic started. Then the pandemic started and I basically just stopped altogether because I, I didn't want to do the Zoom transition. And I had lots of other stuff going on, but I was like, okay, I guess that's it for now. And then almost a year went by. And then there was still a pandemic and I was like, okay, this isn't going anywhere anytime yeah. soon. I wasn't able to do comedy either. Cause like up was pretty gone. Like, I mean, was I had a few shows exactly like, yeah. on and off when they're like, okay, we can do like 25 people or whatever. And yeah. so I was like, well, how can I keep doing comedy? In the midst of the pandemic and then also the interviewing stuff as you would know firsthand like it became difficult because then you have to have guests in or you're doing zoom or something and so it's like well how do i get guests and so i was like well if i start a podcast with just a co-host we're, then it's just the two of us like we can still kind of be like covid responsible and yeah. you know we only met when we could and it was only just like my producer who also sat behind like a plexiglass screen and everything yeah. too and far enough away so like That was safe. And then it was just Jackie and I, and that was it. And we did episodes, like, every week. And I approached it, like, doing, let's do a 10-episode series. And that was called No Offense. That was it. Yeah, sorry. I should have said We we planned to do more seasons, but then I got this Stanford thing. And so, like, I think we finished our first season in, like, May sometime, something like that. And then we were going to take, like, a month break, basically, and then come back, do a season two, and... Yeah, I got this position, and it just really consumed all my time uh, dealing with that and moving so much else. And so she's bummed. I'm bummed too. I mean, it's sad to see it go, but it was a really fun time. Like it it was so much fun, and uh, And people can check it out on YouTube. Yeah, it is on YouTube. It's pretty. I think it's on like the the video stuff's all on YouTube, and then there's uh, the audio is also out there on most platforms. Like I don't know, Spotify. You guys did do one uh, uh,
0: dating sketch thing too that went up. Yeah, yeah.
1: So once once I found out that we were yeah, I, I've always, I kind of always wanted to get into acting, honestly, and I thought it'd be fun to try some type of acting stuff or doing like some sketch comedy, basically. Because then it was like, okay, we can't. Well, season two, we'd actually plan to basically include like a short sketch in each. So that one of the reasons why we wanted to do it by season is also so we could kind of change certain things about each season and like add new stuff. And because then you know it's we have. It's still like the same show, but we could do some things differently. And so season two, we were going to add like a short sketch each episode or have like guests that were... Because it was just the two of us as a co-host. We didn't have interviews or guests, but we're thinking maybe we could include some guests. That would be fun. Um, But the guests could come in in like a a cameo type thing where we do like a sketch together or something and then we include that and then we actually talk about the sketches. So we started filming some sketches for that and then we didn't end up doing the season and so we were like well let's just release we actually have a couple unreleased sketches still that we were gonna put out between the two of us um that i just still need to like edit them all together basically and um like we had a producer who did all the production work but i did all the editing work and so that was just like it's a lot you know i know uh, (laughs) yeah yeah you know firsthand how. so it's like it's it's there's a a learning curve
0: at least is the main thing i would say to people but once you get you get better for sure like i know how to make things happen now that mm-hmm. i didn't uh, even six months or a year ago you know i'm constantly speeding yeah. up the process and you're like
1: we're like 60 70 episodes in or something right you're yeah like... but
0: we're only uh, about to end the second season which each season's been a year around okay, So october yeah. 21st wow. will be the marker of two years since wow. i launched
1: Fuck, congratulations man. thank you no this is amazing what you, yeah you've really grown like a lot of this show here and what you've done i think to help represent you know what's going on in ottawa the comedians other people like and outside of Ottawa too i know you've got a lot of other people like it's pretty awesome yeah what you put together here and it's definitely growing and Thanks, i mean man. i know you said earlier you know like the viewership is you know it's not always quite there but i think that's what's sick about doing these is like you're building the catalog though right like yeah the catalogs there maybe reach even people through different ways yeah I mean, you could pop off more in two years three years even more and then all of a sudden maybe you got hundreds of thousands of listeners that are going back three years to listen to yeah. all your original stuff too and like that's what's i, I love about making art and making things is like definitely it's, it's, it's archived there. yeah
0: yeah no i am uh, i honestly cannot see any reasonable explanation for why i would stop doing this mm-hmm. it's, it brings me a lot of joy i keep learning stuff making new friends and anything else that comes along with that is just gravy and my mm-hmm. dad and me hang out way more than that's we super used to cool. <laughs> yeah and and I love hearing my dad's input on all these conversations too. So, um, but yeah, shout out to Jackie. She's supposed to yeah. come play board games sometime soon because she's really uh, really into them too. So nice. And yeah, oh, actually she... speaking of that, if you could touch on this on your website, it looked like you were designing a board game or something. I
1: did. Yeah, actually, I was it
0: like a prototype or something.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I made a board game in 2019. Because I will say I wasn't on Board uh, Game Geek, the true mark of a board game. Yeah, yeah. I man, we I should have. uh well, if I had more, actually, I could have brought you one of those. I forgot that, yeah, you're, like, super into board games, yeah, too. Man. We could play It's It's like a deep strategy game. Abstract? And, um, uh, I don't know how... Well, abstract I, is, like, chess,
0: uh, or, like, there's no real yeah, thematics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You like, know, kind there's of no like storyline. Like, yeah,
1: chess-oriented, yeah. yeah. That was actually sort of, like, it wasn't meant to be like chess, but the, the premise was meant to be... In, oriented like chess in the sense that everybody in the game like you all start off with like the same pieces the same probability of winning basically yeah. it's like you all have the same a symmetrical moves, game. and then it's really just deep strategy of how do you yeah symmetric that's a good way to put it and uh, well because asymmetrical
0: yeah. games are a huge board game hit most okay. of our games it's where like you're playing this guy. I'm playing right. this guy, and we are operating under a set of parameters. But yep. your deck is full of totally different tricks and I see. things you can do that I right. cannot, and vice versa. Gotcha. You know.
1: Yeah. Okay. Like if you're, or I guess would would you classify that like? Uh, maybe not as like a board game, but I guess like, if you're playing Pokemon cards versus each other or like a Magic or some card game like that. Yeah, yeah I, would, I mean, yeah,
0: I guess because you're do, you're deck building, you're customizing right, okay. your deck. So, okay. it, yeah, as long as you're not playing the exact same thing as the opponent, yeah. then it's an asymmetrical. Gotcha. That can vary to different extremes, of course. Mm-hmm. But I will give a shout-out to Unmatched because I, I interviewed, actually, Was the president that, yeah. of the company that makes that game. But you, you can fight uh, Bruce Lee versus... Deadpool versus Sherlock Holmes wow. versus whoever. You just pick a guy, grab their deck, and play in, like, 20 minutes.
1: Um, sick. Yeah, it's a really great game. So, yeah, I made this board game. That was it. Was it called again? Uh, it's called 33 the- Degrees of Order and Chaos. Okay. And, uh, yeah, the premise is that it's just kind of like a chaotic um, strategy game and winning points and different things. And the it, 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 this was one of those weird things that happens to me with, with some of – I guess different things that I make or end up doing that uh, I do a lot in my head, I guess. And I, I do a lot, of, like I, I like whiteboard work too. And, you know, writing things down, but I, I really like to like move things around and characterize and do stuff in my head. And I, I had this idea that I wanted to make a game at some point And I really wanted to come up with like a game that I could make out of a deck of cards, like a standard deck of cards, basically mm-hmm. that um, it's like, how could I come up with like my own game with a deck of cards and so it does use two decks of cards, but there's also like chips and pieces involved and there is a board, like game uh, game mat for it. And then I started thinking about it one day when I like woke up and then I had a lot of ideas of how they could work. And this was around like Christmas 2019. And then I was driving home uh, like near Toronto from Ottawa, so it was like a four-ish hour drive uh, on Christmas that year. And I basically designed the whole game in my head on that drive. Wow. And I was just driving and I was like, just gave my head something to do while I was driving. And I was like, "This, this is cool. And then on the drive home, back to Ottawa, I kind of finished designing the game in my head. And then I was like, fuck, now I got to make it. <laughs> that's how my brain goes. And that's what it is, is like I'm a, I am do things and that's why I'm fucking all over the map with my career my life is like, because I think about something and that's to me what I, to bring it full circle, that to me is the meaning of life. You want to do something and then go and do it. There's too many people that don't do the things they want to do because they're, whatever reason, they're you're scared, it's fine, you know, there's lots of apprehension. I get that all the time too, but it's like, when I want to do something, I just literally go and do it. I don't ask permission, I just do it and since I'm like well how do I do that and so I um, started working with Game Crafter it's like a board game yes. manufacturer yeah, yeah. where you can kind of like it's make a your own games for customizing. Exactly. Yeah. so I've made some like you said like prototypes and um then uh, it took me a little while to, like, get all that work done in terms of the artwork. And then I've made a few. So I have, like, a few physical copies, um, like, full, fully built games, maybe, like, five of them. And then I have Damn. purchased all the stuff to actually make, I think, like, 40 or 50 games that I was going to start selling. But that was, like I said, Christmas 2019. And then in February 2020, I decided I wanted to write this book. And then I started writing the book. Got sidetracked. And then I got very sidetracked and... Uh, finish the book first and that became more important at the time and it's definitely on my list like I've always got a, a list of projects and like just things that I'm toying how, around Yeah, how with much playtesting did it get Um, So, so far I've played it with only like a few people. I mean, it's actually shameful to say that I I think I made the first game and I had it probably finished and made for months before it even got played. Well, that's not really
0: the problem so much as, especially for someone with, we're talking about rigorous science and all that. Yeah. Uh, I've always heard playtesting is like the most important part of designing a board game.
1: So Yeah. Yeah. So I've, I've probably played it maybe only like half a dozen times, even up until then. Um, and there was um, there was a, a, a number, uh, at least a good handful of things that came up that I'm like, okay, I need to, you know, uh, there's a lot I can figure out in my head. But then I was like, no, I do need to play test it because I needed like, okay, there's, if there's any like contraindications basically like, oh, you can't do that if you can do that. Or, yeah, yeah. You know, like the way the rules work and to make it work. And so I have, that's kind of actually the point where I'm at now is I need to update the rule book. Um, with the new rules that I've realized through playtesting because I'm like, okay, like I need to have a rule for that because when you're playing the game and you're like, okay, well, what happens when this happens? Sometimes you're you can like, break oh, the shit. game like, or, or, yeah, it exactly, makes a yeah. rule so that it's like, reach, oh, we
0: have to stop or no one win. Yeah. No one can win. Or, you reach yeah. some
1: impasse or you're like, yes, oh, there exactly. was there was no rule for this scenario. So it's like you got to think of all those scenarios or you have to play it enough that you find all those scenarios. So it's definitely not perfect yet. still needs some work, but I think the, the concept's there, and it's something that, again, I hope to put to market eventually. And I, I have cool. some friends who have – had their board games bought like by big companies, and I, honestly, it's kind of like uh, you know maybe something like that where it's if I can do that, get it made, build some following or market for it, and then maybe some big company will buy it or something. See, it's
0: a dream of mine in my lifetime to produce and create a board game and put it out. Nice. Um, and I have my problem is more that I'm always the idea guy. I'm so mm. good at coming up with thematic concepts, even general gameplay mechanics concepts, but I get so you know sidetracked when it comes to the mathematical probabilities and then just a lot of the other things that need to go into making a board game Mm -hmm. so i i just i feel need to partner up with the right people that fill those other archetypes or whatever you want to call it and i could have something really good because i've got a couple games i don't want to talk about because
1: yeah i think they're
0: thematically really cool and Mm -hmm. i don't want someone else to to jack them potentially
1: no that's insightful though man it's good to know what you're strengths are and to know like to work with other people to get that shit going and, yeah yeah it's easier said yeah. than done
0: you know when you've already got a bunch of shit going on but mm-hmm. um what else was i going to ask you about uh no
1: i think we got there i mean you got a comprehensive list there i think you, i mean yeah you covered a lot more of the map <laughs> than i even expected i had no idea really what to expect i knew you'd done you you, you do uh you, you would have some things prepped and some questions and like i do always some try back to work. have uh, is, like, i've learned in the past very thorough man yeah it's, you never want
0: to have Too little, so always have too much. And and especially because sometimes, even still, I find myself... Making a notes list that I'm trying to put in somewhat of a chronological conversation order that I think it's going to unfold, mm. or, or I may even try to guide it through. But sometimes it gets unravelled in the first five minutes, and the person jumps <laughs> from like
1: all five topics, and I'm like, all right, we're just gonna have to free ball this one, you know? No, I was happy to let you take the lead on this. I, I was a little worried. I was like, fuck, I don't want to be like that guy hijacking shit because I'm used to hosting oh, no, with no. my show. And I was like, I mean, I definitely think I talked a lot, but that's uh, okay because was, you were
0: explaining uh, a lot, and right. it was. A a lot of stuff that I yeah. don't know that I could have added much to. I was just kind of much like our last episode with the the chef we had on because oh, you know, nice. I was in awe of a lot of what she was saying it was very interesting, but I didn't always have a lot of feedback, you know, and I got a little hmm. self-conscious about maybe I'm not hosting good at that moment, but but that's cool, you know, because the audience might feel the same way. They might be just as lost as I am or just as much of a novice yeah. in these categories. Um I yeah, it's probably getting late too. I know um <laughs> Oh yeah. Yeah. I know that. I would. Okay. Yeah. I had debated bringing up stock markets cause I had heard you or I read somewhere you were pretty into stocks and uh, my dad's into crypto right now. Hey. Which, you want to talk crypto? Cause my dad's, you don't mind talking about that stuff. I find it pretty interesting. Uh, yeah.
2: I'm not way into it. I've da- mm-hmm. I put my toe in the lake kind yeah. of thing well, got and some, uh, some funds I got some right solid now. return on nothing invested. So like wow. I, I had a thing where, uh, this one crypto, like you, you do, you play a game sort of to mine it, right? Yeah. So I'm doing that, but I did it way back at the beginning when it was just getting started, a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, it took me like a year and three quarters to get to sort of 200 US mm-hmm. that I mined, right? And one day I woke up and it was 2,000 US, and then nice. a little while later, one day it was twenty thousand US, and it's it's popping right now. Mm-hmm. So I'm. <laughs> I don't even That's know how awesome. to. I don't even know the steps fully in the process to cash it out. You got to go like you know, through these different agencies to right. convert it to Ethereum, yeah. you know, and then get Ethereum to U.S. dollars, mm-hmm. get it from there into a bank account. Like it's, but it, but it's a fascinating area, and I got I have no doubt that crypto is going to be a big part of the future. Mm-hmm. And uh, stop fighting it, uh, people, and start. Reading about it and learning about it, because one day it's going to be all digital, everything, and 100%. it's just the way we're going. But
0: for the last little while, I've been talking to him. He's he's definitely been letting it ride. Yeah, and it seems to be you know keep going. Well, right no, now.
2: I went up to it went up to like the equivalent of about fifty k Canadian, and wow. now it slid back to about thirty k. So yeah, but what was going to do that initial investment in for you?
1: He got it super like a hundred bucks. Yeah. yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, he just yeah, got fuck. I think crazy. you're in the position that most people wish they were in for crypto and like. I personally don't hold any crypto at the moment, not because I don't believe in it, but just because I dabbled a lot in stocks and was mostly just focused on stocks for a while, and then did really well for a while, and then did very poorly for a while, mm. and that's just the way it goes with stocks. And then, uh, basically, I was it, it consumed my too much of my time because I would found that I'd be like just like checking it every 10 minutes, you know, like watching, because I was doing day trading basically like in flipping uh, like penny stocks and stuff like that. So it's the kind of thing that where you basically like, it's not a long-term investment. You have to like get in and get out as you, you know, get something while it's like companies that are like really, really down and bad, really bad time. And then hope that there's some indicators that they is going to pop them up and so it took way too much. And so for the last few years, I haven't really, I'm only been doing like long-term stuff. So it's something I'd like to get back into, but I'm like a bit apprehensive Sounds stressful. it's, it was too stressful. Well, yeah, and, and
2: that's the world of regulated stock markets yeah. and things, cryptos like the friggin' wild west big time, right? I mean, you talk about vaporware and software, you have vapor products in, uh, in crypto all <laughs> the time. You have these initial coin offerings and, and people right. are, come up with these wacky ideas and, and people just sometimes I don't go, why would you buy that right mm-hmm. but people do they yeah because they're trying to get into it and it's just crazy though right now yeah. well
1: that's that's the thing I think there's a lot of like coins to be cautious of like I, I, I agree for sure cryptocurrency is the future It's it's gonna eventually replace a lot of banking I'm sure and like it's one of those things that you see the early side of it now people probably wish they were in early but it's like only there's, there's a lot of coins that emerge that are just emerging because crypto's popping, so people are buying into them. So what I've been told, at least, like I have friends who are pretty heavily invested in things like Bitcoin, Ethereum, that it's like try to invest in coins that actually have like a real use, like a use case, like like Ethereum does, like Bitcoin does, like Ripple does, for instance. Uh, and then look at what the team is behind the coin uh, as, as far as that is –
2: it's a, lot, it's a lot of research though, yeah, man. I mean, yeah. you talk about a, a time eater. Mm-hmm. It's one thing because you're checking it because something's popping, but yeah. it's another thing to go, well, who owns this company and, yeah. and what's the background and all this kind of mm-hmm. stuff. And you can just while away the hours and still make a big mistake. It's, yeah. And when you've got a, an environment where, you know, you got a thing called Dogecoin yeah. and, and you get Musk makes a comment and suddenly it's through the roof and you're going, okay, do I really want to be in on this? Is, Super volatile. Know, it's, yeah. yeah.
1: That's the nature of the crypto, though. I guess, well, like, you, you've you got it perfect there of the fact that you were able to, like, mine. Like, the mining is a whole other side of crypto, too, which is interesting. The fact that you can basically, like, earn this this digital-type currency. And then, like, you also mentioned cashing it out. Like, they, they don't make that easy either. But the fact that you can do that and the fact that a lot of coins, as far as, like, money goes, I guess, like, if you're to translate it to, like, terms of US dollar, Canadian dollar, might start out at, like, 0. 0.0001 or something. So then... That's kind of where I came at it from the point of view of penny stocks, too, is like if you buy a stock that's like literally worth like two cents, but you buy a thousand of them, that only costs you, uh, what is that, like like $20 or, or something, right? And then, but that coin then goes up, you know, to four cents. You doubled your money just from going to two to four cents. And it's like that with crypto. It's like if you got a coin that's like 0. 0.0001 cents and then it goes up to even being worth half a penny, you just went up like 500x. You're, you're like, and, and Whatever amount you money you put into that is massive. It just blows up. It's, but,
2: but it's like day trading too. That you, there's some sentiment that gets with a coin, and suddenly it starts rocketing, mm-hmm. and you don't know if there's anything solid there, or it's all just crowd enthusiasm, and yeah. something pops so that you get some heavy whale in there and he suddenly sells off and suddenly it just changes just as fast the other direction yeah. I mean, just just like real stocks sometimes right
1: that's how i got yeah. screwed basically was that mm-hmm. it was like back when weed stocks were were big and uh, yeah, yeah. When i, I know a guy who
2: got screwed with that too yeah like i i did like
1: i said very well for a while and then not so well for a while and thankfully most of what i lost was stuff that i wasn't even my initial investment it was like money i made so it's like okay in the span of you know a number of months you know you're up like 20 30k and then you end up losing most of that because you just like do one wrong thing or you stay staying yeah. too long and it's like it's well it's messy. all when the
0: hype dies down on certain things well it's just yeah.
2: like what people say with with that and with gambling and everything else if you get your initial stake back out yeah then you can actually say well this is money i never had anyway and if Learned i lose if i lose day day. it all you know what i'm no worse off
1: that's yeah. kind of how i ended up leaving happily, I guess, with it. It was like, hey, at least I didn't really lose money I didn't have. And it did give me some insight, too, into just like realizing even at that how good off I I have it. Like, I could lose everything that I have, and I would still be better off than so many people in the world. Like, you could take everything away from me, everything that I own, all my money. You could take my house, all my belongings, and I'd still be better off than a lot of (laughs) (laughs) Plus,
2: you also get some, I think, going through the whole thing, you get some insights into yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, like, Mm -hmm. like... how susceptible am I to greed?
1: Yeah. You know? Uh, it's a, there's a lot to learn, like you said too, just from the point of view of understanding the economy. Have you ever heard of, uh, there's a great book and there's also an audiobook version of it called The Creature, Creature of Jekyll Island. It's all about how the Federal Reserve was created and um, I guess you could... I don't want to use the term conspiracy because it's uh, the negative connotation of it, but it's like it. it Basically, some people would view it as like all the like money related and gold related, um, like how how that began in the different banks and how all those banks started early on and uh, yeah, I've heard about the Federal Reserve and how fucked it is (laughs) and and all the different ways basically that they can create money. It's a super super comprehensive book, and they go through all these like really nitty gritty things, and I find it fascinating conversation about how that came together and uh the way that they control gold and all the other ways that they can like tax and uh, basically make money and then kept the banks kind of working together and it's all like you know the the rothschild uh, yeah yeah
2: rockefeller rockefeller type
1: stuff yeah exactly
2: sometimes even now i think the world of high finance of the world of currency it's it's this thing that the only way it can keep going is we all collectively are believing in it yeah because these guys are just they're just printing money as they need for Mm -hmm. whatever and it's all owed to somebody around, you know, I mean, trillions yeah. are owed, but it just keeps going up. But who, who's it owed to? Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, it's a, you get into the stuff with the, the states and China, like who owns most of the state's debt, right? It's China, they mm-hmm. say. They're all these guys are ever really going to fight it out if, if, if China wipes out the U.S. they never get their money back. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like,
1: <laughs> come on. <laughs> yeah. No, that's funny, man. It's uh, uh, That is exactly how it is and it's like the, the history of money and how it emerged. I talk a little bit about that in my book too of like, how trade began and, you know, money used to be, have a physical representation. You could, you get paid in livestock, for instance, like I'll give you six goats, you know, and that, that has value. Or you give somebody gold, which has a value and has a weight to it. And, um, but now the, the whole federal reserve thing is that there's, you know, there's not as much gold as they say that there is. And, you know, with the same thing with banks, like banks are only required to keep like 1% of what they actually have, um, in, in liquid cash. So the other 99% of that they can loan out and then tax the loans and then they can or rather collect interest on the loans and then you can collect interest on the interest and and so on and so forth. So that if everybody wanted to take their money out at the same time, there wouldn't be enough money in the bank. And that's kind of what causes banks to crash and different things, the housing market when all that blew up and that there was all these subprime loans. So the people who did you know how they were giving loans out to all these people who actually couldn't pay their loans back so then enough people couldn't pay them back so then the banks crashed the banks had to get bailout. that was like 2008 stock market crash and and the housing bust and so i was like i I like to learn about that sort of stuff history of money and super interesting it's kind of what drives the economy and that's one of the reasons why i guess cryptocurrency is is proposed to be this big solution potentially because it's like a decentralized source where all that when you have a banking institution or a Federal Reserve, like one company of the country who runs all the money, that's a very centralized um, banking system. It all flows through them. But cryptocurrency is decentralized. Everybody owns what everybody owns. And yeah, you've also
2: in ESL, in uh, you've got the blockchain, right? This yeah. inviolate oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. tracking mechanism that yeah. is unbreakable, so they say. So. Yeah, that's, a, that's I wanted a to speak to what you
0: said about uh, mm-hmm. if China took out the states they'd never get their money if we look at uh, you know the Mafia they don't kill the people that owe the money they break their toes break yeah. their fingers so that's you know I think what would happen there we'll oh, try and really strong them you know because it's a good mm-hmm. point if you take out the person that's your you know your source or whatever they might that's be right. to you oh,
2: they're also their biggest customer and yeah. things like that right I mean it's just there are so many interconnections at so many levels that uh yeah, I mean, it'd be the end of the world, really, if, if these guys went at it, because we'd have a, a worldwide collapse of, like, everything. So
0: yeah, And no. that's all for this week, folks. <laughs> <laughs> we always like to leave on a positive note. Yeah, uh, we should way wrap way it I up, did. though, but oh, I want yeah. to ask you the season two question. Um, if you could have dinner with anyone that mm. you've never met before, who's alive or dead, who would it be and why? Uh, Leonardo da Vinci. Okay.
1: Yeah, he, he's my Seems favorite. fitting for you. Yeah, he he's my favorite um Scholar, luminary of them all. Like he's, he was an inventor, an artist, a scientist. Uh, I have a lot of like uh, old journals. I wish they were real journals of his, you know, but they're like copies, obviously. Like similies, and, yeah, yeah. But um, that I, I love to read and like look at his sketches and his drawings. And like I just think he'd be such an interesting guy. And like the people that he worked with. And he was also very involved with money in the Medici's and the Medici Bank. Um, and it was like 1400s-ish or so. He just had his 500th year anniversary a couple years ago of his uh life or death basically you know 500 years past uh so i guess yeah i think he was like late 1500s when he died and i've always thought that i don't know i've I've always been fascinated by him like i love i think you know if i were to have a top three it'd also probably be like somebody like stephen hawking or einstein um just like, I mean, just super, super smart people, which is why I'm fascinated with people like Elon Musk nowadays and um, like Neil deGrasse Tyson and stuff. Like, really, though, just because, like, to me, like, those are probably a couple of the smartest people, like, alive today, you know, like, that are existing and like watching people like Elon Musk do what he does and not saying he's all good and everything and there's lots of reasons to like him or not like him, but he's just, he's fucking. Smart as hell, like he he can do all the stuff that he talks about too. You know, like he is the engineer, he's the scientist, he's a rocket engineer. He sends he does a all fucking car to like, space on his rocket or whatever. It's, it's nuts. That
0: was that, when I saw that. That was kind of what pushed me over the edge with him, where I was like, yeah. okay, like that's a pretty baller move, I guess. I don't yeah. know what, what you, what's cool in space
1: world, but uh yeah. it seemed pretty rad to send a convertible or whatever it was. I think it'd be cool to hear. Da Vinci's take on, like, the world today. Because I think if he was alive today or if he was somebody who was, like, born today and then he, like, grew up in today's times, that he would still be, like, this amazingly smart, like, invention-type person. But, like, the amount of things that he came up with. uh, (laughs) What if? He was,
2: was like, the original Renaissance man before the Renaissance, right? And today, I think a, a man like him would be challenged as we all are today, because it's very difficult to be a Renaissance person today. There's too much knowledge. It's expanding too quickly. Everyone specializes because that's the only way you're going to get ahead in your particular field. Um, in fact, you're a little more diverse than you're a bit of a Renaissance guy. If I may say, uh, you don't get enough of that. his ears are burning. <laughs> you, you don't get enough of that today. Uh, you get scientists and they eat, live and breathe their science, their, their discipline yeah. to the exclusion of all else usually, yeah. or in many cases. Oh, you're totally but, right. But, but it's, it's hard not to do that because there's so much data available just in your particular area and it's moving so fast. Yeah. So I think someone like Leonardo who paints one day, does aerodynamics another day and does sculpture a, a day after that. He'd be he'd be pushed today, I think, to, to mm-hmm. be live that type of lifestyle.
0: Well, yeah, it's so true. When you're talking about there being so much data in a specific field, like I always think that when I see you know stumble on some random thing on the Nature Channel and it's like Dwayne Elby, newt specialist or something <laughs> like that, I'm like, this guy just studies newts, and then you find out there's like 65 varieties of newts or newt. probably more than that. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah,
1: um, and he only deals with the you know the the purple the one ones. kind. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll leave it on purple newts. That's a purple good one, man. Nudes, man. High no, five, I mean, love it, man. I really appreciate. Uh, no, you thank having you for stopping by. Awesome. And you, when you're
0: you, back in Ottawa, I'm I hoping we can it. grab a beer.
1: Actually, yeah, man, that'd be great. And I was actually, I mean, you said it earlier. I don't know if I seconded it enough. Shout out to Jackie too in our show and yes. what she has done. And even when you invited me to to do this, I was I knew there'd be lots for us to talk about, but I half wanted to say, oh man, I should come in with Jackie get the two of us in here and um do like you know just i mean her and i riff together well and i'm sure the three of us it would have definitely been a more of a comedy podcast today than i think i, I had a fantastic time talking with you about all this stuff but i think that there's i wanted to uh, touch yeah. on both for sure no, and, then, really and then and
0: then i i picture if, if yeah. she had come then she would be sitting there with maybe not that much to say <laughs> yeah. as i am yeah. during those types of topics but,
1: uh, you know it'd be fun to uh, have all three of us in here so yeah well it's definitely I'm something we to, can do in the future
0: yeah. um I've, I've thought that though because there's several people where i've been tempted to say like hey would you guys want to come on together but i also mm. never want to make someone feel like they're not enough on their own true you know yeah that's and, a um, very fair point like we've only really used the double mic thing i guess the once so far right have you yeah we had With, two two guys from they do a magic show on Netflix, yes, uh, yes, big, yes big trick yeah. energy yeah so two of those guys came on and, and it was fun it was an interesting experience mm-hmm. um in a couple of weeks, I'm having a few weeks, I guess, uh, early October, I'm interviewing these guys from a funk band that I ran nice. into lo- locally playing like a backyard show. Right on. So two two of them are coming for that. But uh, anyways, man, thank you so hey, much man. and uh, all the Thanks, best brother. on your travels. Appreciate it. And uh, at Stanford and all that. And thank you, everybody, for watching.